Welcome everyone to Dabo's Fingers episode 57! Griffin, Phoenix, Dragon, I'm the Scad Man with you tonight, and with me as always is Matt. And hello everybody, we're going to be covering some doozies this week, uh, continuing our Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons tandem reread that we're calling Feast Dance. Uh, you can find that order that we're reading it in in DavosFingers.com. Today we're going to be discussing five chapters, as always, from the two books. We'll be discussing Danny 3 from Dragons, Sambo 2 from Feast for Crows, John 4 from Dragons, Tyrion 5 from Dragons, and Jamie 2 from A Feast for Crows. Three, sir. Three. No, oh, it's two. Mm-hmm. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, By the time this podcast is released, it will have been a week or so, but uh, we just found out the news yesterday of the passing of Chris Cornell, the famous musician who, uh, among other projects, was most notably known for being the singer of Temple of the Dog, Soundgarden, and Audio Slave. Scad, were you a grunge fan? I know you like metal, but did you do the whole grunge thing at all? No, grunge signified the death of all that I hold dear in music, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was not—I was not a fan. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, res- I respect Soundgarden. Okay, I, I was never really a big fan. I remember when I was—I don't even know how old I would have been when uh, Black Hole Sun came out. That you know, obviously they're a huge chart-topping mm-hmm. world breaker. Uh, but I just remember that video was everywhere. With like, I just remember like melting, melting images everywhere. That's all I remember. But I feel like that video was on all the goddamn time, and I got sick of it. But it was nuts, you know, dude. It was nuts. Yeah. but that was '94, uh, if I remember right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. They, uh, yeah, I was, I, I was never a huge grunge fan. It, it, you know, his death. I'll let you, I'll let you wax philosophical about it in a minute. But his death to me was, it, it's, it represents something interesting about how old I'm getting, because these are artists that I don't identify with as well, because. They were kind of after my my musical heyday, so it's it's a little weird for me. Really? Yeah. This is just showing the age disparity between us, which I feel isn't that much. But because uh, I was just about to say that that I came in at the tail end of grunge, so I I feel like I kind of missed them a little bit from the other end. Oh. Mm. But well, it wasn't that long of a period. No, it, was it really like was five it was years. Early '90s, yeah, it yeah. Was, it was just those those first few years of the '90s when it was really big. Yeah, um, and obviously it had a lasting impact on the musical scene. But, sure. but you know, where where that was, where like Seattle, the whole that whole thing, that was it was a pretty short period. Right, right. Formative, but yeah, short. Very um, formative. Yeah, changed music forever. Yeah, I was uh, I was born in '85, so. I was pretty young when grunge was really doing its thing, but it must have been like 1997-ish or so. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and I had this neighbor who was a younger married guy. He was like in his early, mid-ish, 20s-ish, and uh, he was like trying to quote-unquote grow up, and so he uh, was getting rid of all his stuff from his glory years. And he gave me four CDs, and the four CDs were uh, uh, Soul Asylum, Grave Dancers Union. Uh, I love that album. Alice in Chains, Jars of Flies, Jar of Flies, uh, Pearl Jam's 10 album, 
and Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Um, and and this, this, like I said, it must have been 97. And I think that's the same year Soundgarden broke up. It was 97. But uh, none of those albums, you said you liked the Soul Asylum one, made an incredibly lasting impact on me. Even the Pearl Jam one, which everyone loves that album, 10, uh, except for Super Unknown, the Soundgarden album. And hmm. the big, the I loved Spoon Man. I listened to Spoon Man over and over and over again. Have you heard that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Spoonman is fantastic. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I kind of, but I kind of got out of it quick. I, I didn't become a huge Soundgarden fan or anything. I just liked the record a lot. And what's always stuck with me through all the years, and I got really into to Audio Slave, both because I'm a huge Rage Against the Machine fan and a Chris Cornell fan. But what's kept me a Chris Cornell fan over the years is is simply the emotion that that man was able to demonstrate just through his vocal stylings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Just yeah, by the, the, the way that he sang. The Temple of the Dog song is like a huge a huge thing for that for me. Mm. Like the, his expression, like because you have you have the two vocalists in that song, right? Right? And his is just this overpoweringly uh I think it's I think it's his vocal that's the overpoweringly passionate one. Versus the kind of blasé, <laughs> underwhelming one. He definitely and, uh, was not blasé. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, was it? Is it better on that? I don't even know. Yes. Yeah, I'm, show, I'm showing my. Uh, I'm showing my lack of knowledge in the uh, the whole thing. But that Temple of the Dog song is great, and his vocal in that really sets apart from. From Vetter, it's pretty powerful. From who he was. I mean, he was obviously a, a fantastic lyricist, and he wrote very poetic stuff. It was, it was dark, but it was very poetic. And uh, But I think his true talent was the way that he sang those vocals, not even so much the lyric writing themselves. He was just – his voice was just gorgeous. People say he had a four-octave voice. Um, you know, all theory aside, it was – it was a way that he was able to wear his heart on his sleeve through the way that he sang. It, it was, there were times when he sounded like, I was thinking about it this morning, the way that I would equate it to is like Billie Holiday, like this old school female soul singer. Like he could sound like that and then he could just scream in your face too. It was it was amazing. So um, I, that's what will stick with me is is the way that he was able to emote vocally. And man... Man, he was. They were just starting to. It seemed like Soundgarden and and him, he himself was really starting to hit their stride. You know, they were touring again, and they seemed really re-energized and invigorated. And uh, I don't know if we'll get more details about what led to his death, but um, nor do we necessarily need to. What matters is we'll we'll miss him. There was, I think, there was a lot of music left in him, and uh, we'll miss that. So, farewell, Chris. You mentioned Billie Holiday. Oh, I love him. Her. It's a clueless joke, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not letting it slide. (laughs) Even in Clueless. I love Clueless. Yeah. Anyways, Chris Cornell, you'll be missed. Indeed. 
All right. Uh, next up, uh, our Patreon plug. Blood Riders have flocked to the Kalisar, and you could be next. Our patrons are already getting some little inside interactions with us. Got some polls going on, insight into our prep process, and they're about to get, Matt, their first Films Get Fingered episode as well. Uh, Matt and I have already recorded our review of Guardians of the Galaxy as of the release of this episode, and uh, it will go up to patrons shortly. So come join us, patreon.com forward slash Davos Fingers. And uh, one of the things that our patrons also get access to do is uh, opportunity to ask us some questions that we can answer on some on the cast. You'll notice a few of those sprinkled in here and there. Uh, on this episode we won't do them probably every episode but uh here and there we'll we'll do it so look out for those here thanks for the support guys thank you very much and as you know we are spoiler free up until the very end of the podcast and once that moment comes we will warn you that it's about to get crazy up in here and that we are going to start spoilerizing to the extreme. So we have a special segment at the end of each podcast. It's called Davos After Dark. And like I said, don't worry, we're going to warn you before we do it. So if you're listening and reading the books for the first time, we'll let you know when to drop off. That's right. And lastly, we always say this, if you want to contact us to, uh, suggest topics for future episodes or just ask us questions, uh, you know, reach out and, and just want to talk to somebody. We're here for you, man. Uh, mm-hmm. You can do that through DavosFingers.com, uh, email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, uh, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us on Facebook and leave something there. Uh, yeah, it's been, you guys have been great contacting us, great interaction through Twitter and email. It's been uh, been a lot of fun. So thank you. All right, it's uh, my episode and it's my chapter. Uh, you got anything to add before I jump in there, Matt? Nerp. Nerp, nerp. Silver hair and purple eyes always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Jorothy. And does she know just where she gotta go and won't be tearing? Look how Westerosi comes the nearest Targaryen. The dancers are skilled. The dancers are oiled. The dancers are aroused. And everyone else is getting there, too. Seriously, Danny needs to get some. The distraction is getting in the way of ruling on the reg. Uh, but special guest Zaro's own Daxos isn't that impressed, just as he was never impressed by Danny and Karth, bare-breast or no. Regardless, Zaro has the key to one of Danny's biggest dilemmas. He's just visiting, and he could open up trade with Karth and get Marine's struggling economy back on its feet. But God, it's hard to focus as the chiseled men below rhythmically fuck these lithe women. Dario again creeps into her thoughts. Danny, snap out of it! You have a fucking job here to do, man. Thankfully, the dancing ends, and Danny can get down to brass tacks with Zaro. The only problem is that she has very little to offer, to be honest. Slaves with the name of the game before in Marine, but no longer. And the demand for Marine's copper has shriveled up like Costanza in the shrinkage episode of Seinfeld, as other metals have have waxed. Its forests have also been consumed by fire. Its olive trees destroyed. They just don't have a whole lot to trade. But it doesn't matter, because Zaro doesn't really want to talk trade anyway. He first just wants to talk to Danny about her own safety. He's afraid for her life. I, like, love you, man. The things he's heard in Karth, the enemies are everywhere. Danny tries to bring discussions back to her lands, and a new deal she just made with the Lazar, the Lamb Men. Uh, but Zaro just moves to his excessively flattering compliments. This is a weird game that they play. You guys probably remember. Zaro pretends he's infatuated. Danny pretends to be flattered. Zaro pretends to offer marriage. Danny plays coy. None of it matters. It never fucking goes anywhere. Anyway, they move to slavery after the flattering circle jerk mercifully buries itself. And Danny refuses to accept slavery is okay. 
having been bought and sold herself, and hearing of how the Unsullied are created. Now Zaro insists that these slaves are simply doing what they were born to do. An elephant cannot be a nightingale, he points out, no matter how hard it tries. The world needs slaves, he insists. If every man had to fight for a meal, scientific discovery, artistic exploration, these things couldn't be focused on by those destined to achieve them. So, Danny can only retort that no one wants to be owned, to which we hear an interesting story from Zaro. A trader he knew, now poor, digs a trench for Danny for food and shelter as payment, and he begs Zaro to buy him as a slave and take him back to Karth with him. And Zaro uses this as an example to Danny to, to show her. He can see, though, that he's upsetting her, and he asks to speak privately and change the subject, and they do. Of course, Barry goes with them and guards her. Danny wastes no time after getting him alone. Trade with me, bitch! <laughs> but as discussed, they really don't have anything Karth wants. So instead, Zaro counters with his own warning and an offer. He basically warns Danny that she's going to lead Marine to ruin, and that companies of all kinds and f of fighting men are gathering together to defeat her at Marine. Okay, okay, she thinks. If not trades, what what are you actually here for? Well, he's here to give her something. Thirteen-somethings. Ships. So that she will leave Slaver's Bay. All she has to do is promise that she'll leave, and she can have them. She can get away from all the knives in the dark, but will the thirteen ships even hold all of her people? Her numbers have swelled by the tens of thousands, and she can't leave Marine. She saw exactly what happens when you leave when she left Astapor, and that place is a wreck now. Anyway, she agrees to check out the ships for quality, make sure that they're sound and everything, and then answers Zaro in the morning. Danny wakes up the next morning, and she has a ray of sunshine coming out of her ass. Can they really go home? The ships seem that they're sound, they can get her to Westeros, but it isn't long before reality creeps in and the negative Nancys come out. First, Eerie and Jiki, 13 is an unlucky number, and the poisoned water is no good, Danny. Then Resnak Mo Resnak, who insists her loyal servants of Marine will certainly be executed upon her departure. Simon Strikeback insists that 13 ships are not enough. Another Dothraki, representing her, her Dothraki horde of about 100 people, uh, he, he brings up the poisoned water bit again. Uh, the Unsullied mentioned, like, well, if you don't have room on the boats, we could march alongside the boat on the road, but not the demon road. Many and more would die. Better than staying in Marine, we will all be slaves. So basically, it's just this cacophony of negative information coming at Danny if she were to leave. Enough! No one will be left to die. I will not abandon Marine, she says to the fate of Astapor. It grieves me to say so, but Westeros must wait. And with that, this reader's, and I imagine many others, hearts sank. We aren't alone either. Grolio embarrassed and begged her to reconsider, but her mind is made up. Zara was summoned, informed, but she pleads for the ships anyway, promising friendship. He turns to on her, crying as he does, and declaring, I should have slain you in Karth. She threatens him right back, but again, all their dancing really doesn't yield anything. Zaro departs Marine, leaves the ships behind, but also a bloody glove on a pillow. Means war, Danny says. And that's the end of the chapter. This means war. This means war. Yeah, uh, pretty good chapter, I guess. <laughs> I'll say. Yeah. Started off with a bang. Yeah, I mean, Couple. so I guess, <laughs> yeah, started off with three bangs, you might say. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no? 
So I guess at least she got 13 ships out of the deal. She's got like a tiny navy. Yeah, you'd have to wonder, though, like if, come on, Zaro, only 13. You knew she had a lot of people. If you really wanted her out of there, up the end yeah. a little bit. You can afford it. I guarantee that if you would have done like 30 instead of 13, I think she might have thought differently. It's true. It's a little interesting. I mean, I think they mention, I don't remember whether it's in this chapter or, or in some research I did in prep. Uh, he has himself something like 80 ships. So, you know, like, there's 13 of these people. Like, you only get one ship from each of them. Yeah, I mean, if he gets two ships from each of them, or three, or, you know, donates just a few more of his own. I mean, if they really do, like, this is an economics lesson, right? Like, if slavery is really worth that much to you... Ante yeah, up. man. Ante up, man. Get, get the ship. And, you know... Maybe you they just what? misjudged what it would take. But yeah, you're you're always going to come in low, right? The first offer is always going to come in low. If Danny would have bit back a little bit and said, "Hey, you know, if you can, you really want me out of here?" I think, uh, yeah, thirty but if, ships if, might do it. I don't know. If you're really negotiating, though, and you say thirteen, she's like, "No, I can't." You don't leave the glove. You go, "Well, what about twenty six? No, I I agree. They, they <laughs> so they're not really bargaining. They both like, could have gone back and forth a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. you give Danny some more ships, her biggest worry is her people, right? Yes. You give her enough ships to get all her people out of there, and they'll be gone. She'd do but it. But who are all her people? Because I'm still, I'm not entirely convinced that even <sighs> with 30 ships she'd have gone, or 100. Yeah, yeah. Because There's a lot of people to load up. Mm-hmm. Well, how many of them want to go? The people yep. that yep. stay are forced back into slavery. She's like, Probably. she's like, wait just a second. Let me uh, do a quick survey of everybody and see who's yeah. going to come, and I'll get you right. a head count. We'll go from yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's an interesting offer from from uh, from Zaro, and you know, maybe just to advance the plot or or, or something, or, or to make Danny think. But it doesn't. It does. It seems doomed to fail. Really, it, unless she's willing to, you know, surrender Marine to, to the fate of Astapor, which maybe is the whole point of the chapter that mm-hmm. she's grown and learned and isn't willing to leave. Right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of parallels here with, uh, I think we've had that discussion before just about, you know, leaving too early and leaving before the job is done. And, you know, can you train people up to defend themselves? Barristan makes that point later. Like she gave you your freedom, man, fight for it, keep it, earn it, you know, but it's not that easy. Like, nope. you know, <laughs> it takes a long time to like, understand how to govern yourselves and create a force that you know can police yourselves and it's not just an overnight thing oh for sure i agree well and danny's like what is the line she says i am the calamity that will change these slavers back into people yeah Ah, you still don't have a plan danny yeah (laughs) you can't just change for change's sake you gotta have a plan yeah it becomes so strikingly apparent that they have no way of sustaining themselves without slavery and marine, without some sort of plan. Yeah. There's just no way to sustain themselves. And Danny doesn't have any ideas. Yeah, other she, than that, that, that calamity line you mentioned was uh, in reference to the previous calamity that made them slavers, right? Mm-hmm. Um which was, you know, the, the dragons basically burning up the land so that it was unsustainable to grow right. anything. You can't grow anything. You know, they've got bronze in the mines, but no one wants bronze anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. It, tricky search. I mean, you know, uh, all sympathy to the slaves, but 
it's a little maybe even admirable that Marine like turned it around and found something to be a thriving city with. Um, you know, again, slavery is no good, but <laughs> when you're dealt that hand, it's like, we have to thrive somehow. Right. And they turned to something and they did. Have you, <laughs> Oh, the Louis CK bit, of course, but maybe have you heard it. Uh, it's I, new. I, it's often no, I don't think I have stuff. That. He talks about how everyone's brain has like a competition of good thoughts and bad thoughts, right? And hopefully your good thoughts always win. They're, the, the good thoughts are like things we, we truly believe and that we truly get behind and that we truly support. But then there's like this little thought that sometimes just creeps in and you push it out usually as quick as you can, but the thought just creeps in and he calls it the, of course, of course, but maybe... And, and there's a slavery one. There's one that uh, actually, this one might hit close home to you, so it might not be as funny of a joke to you. It's it's Louis C.K. though, so you know how he is. He talks about the first example he gives is like, because uh, your your kids have nut allergies, right? Or yeah, they do. One does. Both of them. One does. One. He says, of course, children with nut allergies need to be protected. And like, you know, people who are preparing their food need to be conscientious of that. And, and we need to work to make sure these kids are safe and healthy and everything. But maybe, maybe if touching a nut kills you, you're supposed to die. <laughs> I think we, I think we have talked about this because I mentioned my boss that talked about like how frail his family, my, not my current boss, the former boss I had, uh -huh. that his family was just very frail. And he's like. My family would be extinct if we didn't have all these magically human uh, medications and things keeping us alive. We're weakening the gene pool. Right. And <laughs> Yeah. And Louis similar, even says... Similar idea with, with Louis, yeah. Maybe if we just do this for one year, nut allergies <laughs> will disappear forever. <laughs> That's the of course, but maybe. And so he does one with... Sorry, I'm taking a long time to get to the point. He says, of course, slavery is horrible, yeah. abhorrent, the worst thing that ever happened. But maybe, maybe like every incredible human achievement in history was done on the backs of slaves. Like, how <laughs> yeah. did they build those pyramids? Well, they just threw human death and suffering at them until they were finished. Like, yeah. How did they build a railroad so quickly across the United States? They just like threw Chinese people in caves and blew them up. He says, yeah. the line he says at the end was, there's no end to what you can do when you just don't give a crap about a certain group of people. Yeah. That's where human greatness comes from, is we're, we're just terrible people. And, of yeah. course, he's, he's, he's couching course, a, a yeah. joke as a really serious issue. But Yes. And, of course, we disagree <laughs> with him. Oh, yeah. Yes. Of course. But maybe, but maybe, but maybe, but maybe, I mean, it, it, it really is a tempting argument. I've got a note here about it too. I mean, let the, you know, I look, let us be clear. Flu CK bit is funny. Neither of us are advocating slavery. No, uh, and neither is he. <laughs> and neither is he. Uh, <laughs> He's making a, but point. it, but it is, it, Zaro makes it, it's a tempting argument. Yeah. Like, I mean, the people in power obviously get to make the choice. And so that's the shitty part, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a biased, fixed game. But basically, like, if some people toil so that others can look at the stars and figure things out and advance the human race, like, that's important. It's important that, like, some people can focus on the arts and not, you know, try to worry about 
where their next meal is going to come from. Like those are valuable things, but you can't you can't just force people into lives they hate to make that happen. Right? You can't. It's not like our consciousness has has evolved over the years that that's no longer okay. Like it's not okay anymore. People get choices, and you can't treat them like people without choices. Well, and some of our, our, our greatest things, greatest art, greatest discoveries have been by men and women who were working people. Like, you don't have to devote yourself wholly to something and not do the dishes once in a while to make these discoveries. You can still do it, I think. Yeah, you can. Yeah. But but it's like, it's like, okay, so like, I am not a talented person, overtly. But, like, if I didn't have to have a job to, like, get money to, like, feed my family and do all these things, I could focus on the arts and my novel podcasting and these other once things. Podcasting once a week. <clears throat> right, podcasting one time a week. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, perhaps my sister's, like, a better example. Like, for a while, she struggled to find work, and she was on unemployment for a while, right? And during that time, she figured out all of this creative stuff that she was able to do, and yes, it's made a career for herself, mm -hmm. but also I would argue millions of people benefit. And that's because we had a social program. I'm, man, people are going to drop this podcast for being political. Uh, we had a social program that allowed her to not die or not take a job that, that she didn't want for a period of time while she could figure out her next move. Mm -hmm. And that benefited her, and I think it benefited society. So there's there are lines to this, yeah. But it's yeah, not, and, but it's not and, an invalid argument, right? And and my point is that balance is healthy too. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I I I kind of had to smirk a little bit where Danny says that you mentioned the the merchant turned ditch digger. Yes, he's being paid with food and shelter. Yes. So slavery, pretty much a slave. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Come on, Danny. Come on, yeah. if the shoe fits, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody buy Danny a dictionary. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, good times. Uh, I mean, the, the difference is he could walk away if he wanted to. I suppose. Yeah. But but yeah, it's still yep, still. I mean, I think we talked about this too. The you know the fact that after slavery ended in the U.S. Basically, slavery just continued without calling it slavery because they didn't have the capital to to Absolutely. make anything happen. They did have the freedom to leave, but but basically they were economically tied to where they were anyway and didn't have a whole lot of options. I mean, that was a pretty common story at the time. But, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Oh, let's see. What else do you want to talk about? Uh... Oh, Danny says only one thing frightens her now. Oh, but yeah. She doesn't say what that one thing was. Any idea what that one thing is? I, th I, I don't know. I, my answer is cheesy and lame. I, being alone, or, or like, or like really being the last Targaryen, like fail, mm. failing her family. Ooh, okay. that's one of the bullet points I put was failure. Yeah, she's afraid of but, failing. But I mean, she believes based on the prophecy that her womb is dead, and so. That mm -hmm. she has a reason to believe that she is the last one, right? Um, I am the last one. I am the last one. 
Yeah. <laughs> what was that movie called? Uh, Dragon Dragonheart. Dragonheart. Yeah. Dennis Quaid yeah. in his finest. You know what? I've never even seen the movie. I just know that line. Oh man! I feel like maybe that line is quoted somewhere. I, don't I know. think I have it. I think I have the movie. I wouldn't force that kind of torment stuff on, on you, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Carry on. I'm forcing critical role on you, man. Someday. Uh, you still haven't yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I got to... Uh, I kind of want to see these trained freedmen in action. The, these ones that Grey Worm has been training. Yeah. Let's see how they do. Z- Zaro, uh, you know, he kind of... Uh, he writes them off and she's like, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Kind of interested to see. I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'm just very excited to see kind of how... How her whole set of of followers really turns out, because she's only yeah. got. They keep talking about the Dothraki, but she has like a hundred of them. Like if you if you made like a pie if you made like a pie chart of like Marinese and Yunkai and Astapor and and Unsullied and all you know all of her people, and then made it'd a Dothraki a sliver. sliver, it'd be like one yeah. percent. Yeah, it'd, and it'd and probably minuscule. twenty of those could could be warriors, if that. Yes, right. Probably not even that many. Yeah, because mm-hmm. they were all infirm and sick, and the the, right. the strong ones left. Yeah. Some of the younger ones might have grown up to the point that they could fight, but they, they they're not like yeah. experienced or blooded or anything, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did these, think of. Uh, uh, oh, go ahead. These uh, freedmen, you know what they lack maybe in fighting skill, they might make up for with just pure, like revenge mindedness, right? Just ferocity. Yeah. Wanting yeah. to get back at, at these guys that used to that imprisoned them, so yep. it, it would be interesting to see how they do on the field. Yep, uh, I think I, I just have two more things. Uh, one, um, the she she mentions the the Lazar. Even a sheepish friend is better than none. And it reminded me a bit of Hunger Games and Rue, and how. Her number one pick for a, an ally is is little Rue. She the little ended up Lazar. Off. She yeah. did, and I think maybe the Lazar will as well. I don't know with what. Uh, the last thing is I compare one of my things. It's one of my things uh, comparing Danny and John and their development as leaders, and we've seen John in recent chapters with the whole kill the boy focus and making very hard decisions in order to achieve what is his his goal and his job. And it depends maybe what you believe John uh, Danny's real goal or job is, mm-hmm. but she's not making the hard choice. Right. Well, I mean, you, you could argue she's making a hard choice either way, I guess. It depends on what you believe her real mission is. But if you believe her destiny is to sit the Iron Throne, which is, is what she says she believes, she's not making the hard choice and leaving. You know, yeah. John's hard choice was much easier. It was sending a few friends away, um, you know, and, and sending a baby away. This is perhaps leaving a city to complete ruin and destruction, uh, which is, you know, much higher stakes. But, you know, John is making the hard choice and Danny is maybe not. Yeah, um, it's, not it's, willing to. it's not exactly an apples to apples, but I, I totally get what you're saying, because that's something that we've kind of done as we've started this. Uh, it's more started with this series, hasn't it? With these two books that we've started. I feel like it, yeah. really comparing John and Danny on a regular basis. But yeah. Yeah, well, Danny's finally idea. in this series been in a place of of real ruling. You know, she's been a leader, but but really mm-hmm. ruling something 
Yeah, this is the first time she's really been in, in that position. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and John definitely killed. And really, the boy. John too. And yeah. uh, we're going to be getting to that. Yeah, indeed. More of that now. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Nope. All right. We're gonna we're gonna hit up our first uh, oh, yeah. our first QA mailbag mm-hmm. question. Uh, QA and A. QA means come quality up with assurance, a... Scott. Yeah, we need to come up with a segment name for this. Failure. Uh, yeah, we'll come up with a jingle. Too. We'll come up with yeah. We'll, oh, a jingle. Ooh, wow. All right. Mm-hmm. So this first one is from Tana, and I'll ask you directly, Matt. Who is your favorite character to hate? And it, and it's not it's not just like who do you hate the most, right? It's like someone you enjoy hating, right? You almost relish your hate. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got the guy for it, and people could guess who it is. I have a guess. Should we guess each other's? Maybe yeah. we should guess each other's. Who do you think? I think yours mine? is Tarly. Oh, close, but no cigar. Oh, I hope it's not Tywin. It's totally Stannis. <laughs> oh, Stannis. All right. All right. I just love to hate that guy. He just grinds my gears. Yeah. And uh, while I respect a lot of the things he stands for, I just can't stand the guy. And yeah. I'm totally fine with that. And I do hate I do hate Randall, but it's with a deep passion. And I do hate Craster, but it's with a deep passion. Stannis, I hate, and I just love it. It just makes me laugh that I that I hate him. It drives me insane, that guy. Good choice. I, I Yeah, I would have never thought of that because I do like Stannis. I mean, I, yes, he's, yeah. he's flawed. I don't love him. I like him. He's flawed, right? Um, yeah. yeah, they all are. But I enjoy his flaws, and I, don't, I certainly don't hate him. I think he's coming... I think he's coming at this whole thing from an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, by yeah, hating him, hate him, it doesn't mean that, I, that I've just dismissed him or his character or his arc. Yeah. It's just I don't like him. I'm a lot like Stannis, I think, so I don't, I don't hate him. Eh. I, like, just kind of very pragmatic and like, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, yours. Oh, I'm going to guess Jamie. That's a good choice. It's Tywin. That's why I said I hope yours isn't Tywin. Nice. Uh, I love to hate Tywin because because he's so good at what he does. Mm. He's so mm-hmm. he's so good at what he's done, right. you know. And he's he's made this critical mistake of underestimating one of his children, perhaps, and, and you know dealing with him very casually in what was a life or death situation. Um, but he's just so good at it, and and just controlling and manipulating everybody, even to the point where he's manipulating the characters that I truly hate, like Cersei. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. like. Uh, he's just he's just fun to like watch and, and hate everything that he does because it's so it's so personally motivated, but he's so good at it. Yeah. So my yeah, mine's Tywin, I think. So we both have like this grudging admiration for the people we hate. No. Yeah, a little bit, a little. I, I mean, in real life, I would never admire this person, but as a fictional <laughs> yeah. character, I kind of can. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We can do yeah. what we want. Yeah. And, and we can pick and choose parts to admire about people. Sure, sure. We don't have to just love someone 100%. We can pick pieces that we love of Tywin Lannister and pieces that we love of Stannis and pieces that we love of whoever. But I pick pieces of people to love all the time. I didn't, I didn't take that out. I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking that out. <laughs> Uh, okay should we go to sam let's do it okay 
you don't think that you belong here, but boy, let me tell you, you do. Samuel Tarley, they can hardly keep your dreams from coming true. Slaying things that'll make the bravest shiver. Time and time again, boy, you deliver. Slaying, fighting, reading, and writing. Samuel, boy, this world was made for you. So let's be honest. One of the hardest parts about reading the later books in the series is remembering where POVs left off. It's so crazy hard for me. So let's remind ourselves real quick where Sam's at. As you recall, Sam is on a ship from Eastwatch by the Sea up north, and he's heading to Old Town. That's clear down, like pretty much on the opposite end of Westeros. Uh, we've talked about it before, so we won't do a, an official Sock and Susmapas. But his mission to go down there is to enroll at the Citadel, forge his chain, and become a maester. The Nightwatch's new maester, to be specific. Now, in his company are Maester Amon, who's sent with Sam to get him out of the potential clutches of Melisandre and her lust for king's blood. Remember that Amon is descended from royalty, and he's going to just live out the rest of his days in the peace of the Citadel. And I don't know, maybe even serve as something of like a character reference for Sam? Could. <clears throat> Could. Gilly is also in company with Mance Raider's child after the heartbreaking baby switch she was forced to go along with. The plan is to take her and the child to Sam's old stomping grounds of Horn Hill to hopefully become a household servant of House Tarly. A very comfortable life compared to what she's experienced thus far in her poor, poor life. Uh, rounding out the group is Darian, a musically inclined black brother with a voice, as Amon describes it, like... Honey poured over thunder. Hmm. Ooh, Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell, actually. Hmm. <clears throat> and he has been tasked by Jon Snow to be the Night Watch's newest recruiter. So performing the job that old Yorin did back in uh, Clash of Kings, right? End of uh, Game of Thrones. So uh, they're all currently on the largest ship in the Nightwatch's fleet, the Blackbird, heading down to Bravos, where they'll then catch a connecting flight to Old Town. And in the wor words of General Jandadona, the approach will not be easy. Autumn <laughs> storms, not as strong as winter storms, but more frequent, pummel the ship and leave everyone in relative misery. Sam is perpetually seasick and has become a talented wretcher. The baby never stops crying or crapping. And Gilly seems resigned to her just depression. This adds to Sam's stress as he nobly tries to cheer her up, initially unaware of Baby Switch. So that's pretty much the backdrop of the entire chapter. So for the rest of the summary, I'm just going to hit on some of the delicious little tidbits we are fed as the storms rage and the baby cries and Gilly cries and all that. So first of all, Amon's health is deteriorating, deteriorating rapidly. Remember, he's a really old guy. But from him, we get the story of how he arrived at the wall in the first place. You see, he left for the wall in 233 AC. That's 67 years from this point. After his brother Aegon had been crowned king, Aegon, or Egg as he was known, wanted Amon to stay and help him rule. But Amon says he knew his place was at the wall. Uh, Brendan Rivers, also known as Blood Raven, former Hand of Kings, also took his vows at the Wall with Amon, uh, and they all were accompanied by this huge honor guard up to the Wall to escort Amon there. Uh, Duncan the Tall of Duncan Egg fame escorted them up there, by the way. 
Uh, anyways, more of Sam's f past is fleshed out as we find out that his father had originally intended to squire him out to the Red Wines, a reasonably wealthy and popular family of the Reach. But that plan fell through when Randall and Sam went on a visit there, and Sam was bullied by just about everybody, uh, to the humiliation of Randall, and the plans were, were called off. Uh, next, Gilly seems to be public enemy number one on the ship, with the crewmen both annoyed by her and the babe's incessant crying, and also considering her, because of her past as an incest everything, uh, she's, she's unlucky, she's a bad omen, she's, they just can't have her on the ship. If they want the storms to quiet down, she and the baby need to be thrown overboard. Uh, you best believe our hero Sam won't let that happen. Uh, speaking of Gilly and Sam, Sam is at his wit's end with Gilly's constant crying. Not like, I'm going to smack you if you don't shut up at wit's end, but more just out of honest, like, good-hearted concern. He honestly wants to calm her fears of being out on the open sea for the first time in this scary situation. And as he consults with Maester Amon on what can be done, the wise Maester replies, That is the sound of grief, and there is no potion for that. Let her tears run their course. You have two good eyes, and yet you do not see. She is a mother grieving for her child. It's then that it hits Sam that she actually has Dalla's kid. Sam can't believe it. Can't believe John would do something like that. But Maester Amon counsels, sometimes there is no happy choice, Sam. Only one less grievous than the others. Oh boy, is that adulting 101 or what? Uh, this puts Sam into a pretty sad estate. This is maybe the saddest state that we've ever seen him in, as he concludes that there are no happy choices and no happy endings, and that the worst, according to him, is just beginning. And on that wonderful note, the chapter ends. Uh, what a good one, hey? Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this chapter maybe you like felt like the Davos chapter last time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some interesting stuff there, mostly from Amon. Uh, get the tidbits, yeah. You know, I mean, like the big reveal in the chapter is is the one that we all know about about the the baby switch. Yeah, um, that's that's what's uh, crappy about, or not crappy, but that's what's different about doing the combined read, right? Oh, that would have been a reveal to us. Yeah, because yeah, would have been. Yeah, you're right. We don't. A dance with dragons is where it's revealed to John, that John is doing it. We get it from his POV that he's doing it, but he never tells Sam. So Sam's yeah. POV in a feast for crows, he sees Gilly just running away crying, but we never get the explanation as to why. And that hit me this time. I was like, "What? This? This? We know all this already." And then I was like, "Wait a second! For someone reading Feast for Crows this first time, they would have been. They could have." potentially been completely blown away by this review. Yeah, that's a good point. That's pretty All rad, right. Hey? We should be we should be taking a tally like times we note that the, the combined reread is helpful versus annoying. Right. This is right, probably that's, that's really damaging the, to this chapter. You're right. It's the biggest it's it's the biggest uh uh spoiler maybe we could call it of the combined reread order is that you're robbed of having that huge surprise. Right? Yeah. Anyways, yeah, maybe maybe the the uh, the Tyrion thing too, mm. because you you get the Tyrion stuff and you know exactly where he is. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just reading Feast, you know he escaped and you have no idea. Like, what's oh, that's going true. On. Yeah. And seriously, and Jamie are like, where is this guy? Is he hiding in the keep? And you're like, but I think, I think, I think maybe Varys does tell you where he's headed before he leaves. He's like, I got a boat. We're going to take you to. Yeah, he knows he's going yeah. to the so free cities. Know at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's not like you actually would think reading Feast that he is hiding in the walls because you do know he went to Pentos. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, you just your heart goes out to Sam, but you know even more obviously to Gilly. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? One one thought I had: uh, who's rowing this boat? Night's Watchmen, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I'm gonna go somewhere, and people hate it probably, but. This is like perhaps a gross misuse of resources. What if this ship goes down and they lose 50 men mm-hmm. that could be guarding the wall mm-hmm. just to get Amon away? Sam could go by road. He doesn't need a boat or, you know what I mean? Like this just seems like a bad choice. This boat could <laughs> easily sink in these storms. In the storms. Yeah. Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm questioning John's decision-making on this one, I guess. Well, it kind of sounds, though, that, like, the, uh, <clears throat> this is what these guys do in the watch. They're Maybe. captains of ships, and they are rowers of ships, and that's their job. Now, could their resources be reallocated to be on the wall? Yeah, for sure. But, uh, mm. and, yeah, and maybe you're right. It doesn't... Whew, I'll also say uh, this. Well, no, I won't. It's maybe a spoiler. I won't say it. Go ahead. Okay. Because I think it said, oh, I should have written down the the dates now when I was reading. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, I very well could be. Amon went to the Citadel when he was nine years old. And he was 16 when he really forged his chain. 19. He he came to the wall at 35 and he says it was 16 years ago that he Mm. got his chain. So he's 19. Oh, I yeah. thought he was 32. Okay, well, either way, he was, we're talking seven to ten years to forge a chain. And uh, it seems to me that Sam was like, it seems like John's like, just go down there, you know, do your thing and get back up here. Yeah. This could yeah. take, this, this isn't like a two-week course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't know, right? Like, so, so the maesters can, I don't know exactly how it works, but it seems like you don't have to get them all. No. It's almost like you get inducted as a maester, and you're, like, officially a maester. And then you gotta, like, choose how many rings you want to get. You have continuing education type stuff. Right. And so... you're still learning. You, you kind of choose a specialty, it seems like. Yeah. But And maybe Amon specialized in all of them, and so, yeah, nine years. And also, Amon was a teenager. Maybe he decided to enjoy himself a little bit and wasn't the most, you know, studious. Right. Sam's a little bit older and a little bit more yeah. studious, but I still imagine that with all the learning they have to do, the medical stuff they have to learn and all of that, I'd imagine you're, you're looking at at least three or four years. Yeah. Principally, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. This is not going to be like, see you in a few weeks, bud. Yeah. I'll be right back. Yeah. Which, is, which I think underscores a little bit what he's saying about, uh, I think it's in the last John chapter we did. When he notes how, maybe it was two ago, he notes how old Clytus is. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh man, this guy, he's old. I think in the back of his mind, he's like, <laughs> is he going to make it yeah. until Sam gets back? Right. 
which which just goes back to my point about they need more maester schools than the one way down in Old Town. They need some satellite branches. Mm-hmm. Eat them all over. One in each region, if you ask me. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Education is best. Mm-hmm. Interesting, too, that Sam, he doesn't really want to be a maester, it sounds like. He says he doesn't want to have that heavy chain wrapped around his neck, which to me signifies two things. One is the psychological screwing up that he's gotten from his dad. We all remember the story of him being chained up. Yep. Um, But also I think that's just symbolic of Sam not wanting to feel like inhibited in his learning, right? Like he's forced to learn. He just likes to learn to learn. He doesn't want a set curriculum, right? He just wants it all. And, uh, uh, yeah, I think the, I think that's part of it. So I agree for sure with the first one. I think he's mm-hmm. just mentally not prepared to deal with this. Like, not mentally, psychologically prepared to deal with this. Sure. And what it means to wear the chain, given mm-hmm. his treatment by his father. And and yeah, I can see what you're saying with the second point. I think I think it's Sam doesn't like pressure. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. He, maybe that's part of what you're saying. He doesn't. He doesn't want to feel pressured to do anything. He doesn't want to feel exactly. beholden or. Or like he has to complete something, or or there are stakes. Like he just doesn't want that in general. Mm-hmm. And there are people like that. I mean, we mentioned the you know letting people look to the stars thing. I mean, there are people that just need to be left alone to complete things and to provide value and not not to be driven by tasks all the time. Right? Well, you remember uh, when he was down in the in the library or the done the yeah the yeah. library of the the watch yeah. and he was yeah. happy to just be down there as long as it took yep <clears throat> in a very kind of unstructured he's free yeah. to to go about his learning and report his findings and also just the fact that he's we've talked about this already that he just feels comfortable at the wall now that's where his friends are and yeah and it's that's the only, of course yeah, it's the only place he's ever felt comfortable and that's really fascinating that such a bleak place where there's a lot of danger right now is where Sam the Craven feels comfortable, and I say yeah. Craven sarcastically because no, he's not. Of course. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing. It's just kind of um, I wouldn't say it's hidden, but it's it's not emphasized as the major point of this story. But there's a pool beneath Horn Hill. Yeah. You know. You notice there's like there's always stuff beneath these castles, like caves or like we hear about. In Castle Rock, there's, you know, it's like right under the ocean, but maybe there's caves underneath. There's mm-hmm. a pool here. We hear about the caves in Winterfell. Yep. There's just... What's going on down there? Yeah, just there seems like there's always stuff under the ground. And do they connect? And do they... What's... What's going on? Well, everything's just so old, too. Yeah. Right? These yeah. places are thousands of years old in some cases. Yeah, we don't know much about Horn Hill itself, but yeah, like what, like a pool under there? Like why? What's, doesn't seem like a natural place to put a pool unless there's a hot spring or something down there. I'd imagine maybe it's something like that. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just, I have to think there's something going on. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. Winter's coming, man. Who knows when that stuff will, uh. All of a sudden, become useful in some way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel like this might be the first time I've ever seen Sam. I don't know. I'd call it angry. 
It's it's a feeling of like betrayal and and intense sadness. At dawn. Yeah, but I I would also term it as as anger. If he burns Gilly's boy, who will care? No one but Gilly, you know. Um, yep. That's funny. I didn't read it that way. Yeah, um, I, it's I, definitely I, tinged with a healthy amount of sadness. But well, I no, think I read. I agree. Well, I'll have to read it again now. I read that like he's he's clearly very conflicted about this. John had reasons, but this isn't okay. You know, Amon certainly seems to say that John had reasons. You know, mm. the boy thing. So you're um, saying that he's understanding? I think he's saying, "Oh, John knows that no one will care if they burn that baby. Mm-hmm. Stannis won't care. Melisander yeah. won't care. They're, it doesn't help them, so they won't burn him. Mm-hmm. The only per- person that would care is Gilly, and so they wouldn't. They have no motivation to. Yeah, we're reading it two different ways. Right. You're reading it as kind of he's he's taking a very reasoned approach to it. Yeah, I'll have to, and, have to look at it again. And I and I feel like he's not. Um, well, that just might spoil my whole next statement. Um, I'm saying I think that if it is anger, I think it's anger because he's been that kid. He's uh, been that kid that nobody cares about, right? Mm-hmm. Who's no good for anything. And uh, I and maybe that's what did it for me as I thought of that. But um, Sam's been there before. And he knows what it's like to not feel loved or wanted. Uh, is also reminiscent of Davos in regards to Edric. What is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? We all know Davos's response: everything. Everything. That chilling yeah. response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but that's 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 the reason John sent Mance's baby away. Because yep. Yeah. Isn't that because, interesting though? Because Mance's baby's life is worth everything. Send uh-huh. him away at risk of getting caught. At risk of. These other things we can't have them sacrificed. But the little bastard like, baby of Craster's is not happy worth everything. With... Well, I th- I, well, I, I mean, he's clearly playing a game with it. Like, like there is a risk to mm-hmm. that baby, but there's mm-hmm. much less of a risk because he can just be like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's not him," and then he thinks that baby will be safe. Right. I, I don't think I don't think he plans on like being like, "Oh yeah, burn it up, go for it." Mm-hmm. I think he plans on being like, "Ha ha ha, wait." The baby you seek with power is not anywhere near here. You don't need to burn this baby, right? I wonder. I really wonder. I mean, what's Stannis going to do? Go to Horn Hill and get the real baby and burn it? It's... Well, isn't that partly why he's having a baby stay? Is to buy them time? To buy them time, yes. Yeah. The further away they get, then they, there's nothing they can do about it. Potentially. I don't know. I wonder if John would let the baby burn. I don't know. I'm not quite as confident as you are. I'm not saying he would, but I'm not quite as confident. I'm. I am certain he wouldn't. I mean, okay. uh, he wouldn't. He wouldn't militarily be able to stop them if Stannis decided that after John said that isn't the baby you're looking for. Stannis said, "I'm burning it out of spite." Then, like mm-hmm. John, may not oh, and I don't stop think I don't think point, Stannis so would burn it out of spite no, for sure. Either. I'm not saying no. that. Uh, right. I think, you know, I'll tell you this. I think most people would agree with you. I think they would. So, I'm an agreeable person. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you didn't hide that. <laughs> Jesus, Matt. No tell me how you really feel. Time. I'm still around, though, Scott. I'm still around. Yeah. Well. 
Uh, you got anything else here? Uh, no. All right. Let's move on. We've been talking a lot about John. We'll move on to John Q music. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. John, Bowen Marsh, Dolorous Ed, and Wick Whittlestick travel the Wormways, a series of underground passageways that the watch uses to get around when the snow is too deep to move around in, in order to take inventory of their food stores today. From apples to olives, venison to oats, onions to sausages, John feels they seem well-provisioned. Not so, according to Bowen Marsh, especially with Stannis' men, the wildlings that have come through, and hungry mouths from Molestown, their stores will not last long. Growing season is nigh over, and they don't have the coin to import food. There is a sense that, unsolved, this will lead to problems, like potentially violent problems. Well, they make their way topside, and Devin Seaworth is waiting for them, Stannis' son. Or, sorry, Davos' son. Stannis commands John's presence. The wrong way rangers have returned, and there is some discussion to be had. The Stannis show starts with a gift. Stan gives John a rattle shirt. All right. John has been asking for men from Stannis, and don't ever say Buddy Stannis never gave you nothing. Next, Stannis has some more political questions. Mora's Umber has apparently offered allegiance in exchange for Mance's head and a pardon for his brother Horsbane Umber. Now he, that guy's marching with Ramsay. Stannis wants to know if Morris is to be trusted. John encourages him to accept these terms, and asks also if other lords have sworn to Bolton like Horsbane has. And then Mel reveals a, dream, a, a, a vision she had in her fire. Uh, Hornwood, uh, Sirwin, Tallheart, Risewells, and Dustins were all in Mel's fires and have supposedly declared for Bolton. John indicates that these lords are uncertain, some of them tied to Boltons by marriage. In many ways, the Northern lords probably don't know who to follow either. They're, they're kind of making alliances with someone that seems powerful. They don't kind of know what to do, maybe. Um, but John again encouraged them to accept Mor's offer, but you can't make the horse drink, you can only lead it to water. Anyway, the giant slayer disagrees. He wants to cut off his head, that's Mor's head, and sack Last Hearth, the home of the Umbers. They bicker and argue about who's gonna kill who until Stannis calls for attention, informing John that he intends to move on to his other foes. <laughs> now, John thinks he knows exactly where Stannis is going and launches a preemptive strike, indicating that the wall takes no part, Stannis! We cannot help with the war! Stannis asserts him that's not at all what he's talking about. He's gonna march on the Dreadfort, and he needs some advice. John warns him, marching on the Dreadfort will not go well. The Boltons will know they are coming, encircle them, cut off their supply lines, all that jazz. Also, that Ramsay will be back from Moat Kaelin before they can even reach the Dreadfort. Moat Kaelin falls easily from the north, it's just really hard to take from the south. It's just too risky of a plan, Stan the Man. But they aren't convinced. These southern lords know nothing, Jon Snow. Still, they prattle on. The force holding the castle, they argue, will be men and boys, and they'll have umbers if they take more as a deal, Karstarks that have uh, already pledged, uh, Arnold pledged a while ago, uh, and wildlings that they're bringing from the wall. And wildlings, by the way, they need to arm. And there it is, the kicker. John has another inner battle. Is giving weapons to the wildlings for Stannis' army taking part? He's been very wary of taking part with a king because the wall isn't supposed to do that. He just doesn't know. He's very conflicted. So, he agrees to spears and helms, but no swords, no heavy armor. But warn Stannis again, don't take the wildlings. 
the Bannermen of the North will not approve of having wildlings in this force. Stannis considers this and demands some alone time with John. He takes an interesting tack with John at the beginning. Beginning kind of with like a, a little bitter throw-it-back-in-your-face threat. Uh, that one of these knights, the giant slayer or one of the wrong-way rangers of, uh, you know, one of Stannis's men, will end up being the Lord of Winterfell if John doesn't do something about it. And he has the power to stop it by joining the dark side, or Stannis, and being the Lord of Winterfell. Winterfell belongs to my sister Sansa, and my sword is sworn to the Night's Watch. God, Stannis must hate this guy. He keeps offering him, like, everything he's ever dreamed of, and he keeps turning him down. Anyway, Stannis is going to go ahead with the attack on the Dreadfort, but Jon offers him an alternative to taking the Wildlings. Go pay your respects to the Mountain Clans. You can get two or three thousand men instead of the three hundred wildlings you're going to take. Then, from the mountains, go take Deepwood Mott. That's held by the Ironborn instead of being held by Northmen. So you'll gain kind of more political capital with the North if you get the Ironmen out. Stannis is in. But John warns Mel that these Northmen in the clans, they, they, they'll suffer no insults to their, uh, their northern gods. Don't worry, Mel's going to stay at the Wall. Interesting. The only time we've seen Mel kind of depart Stannis' side was at the Blackwater. Stannis is warming to this plan. If he can smash the Ironborn at Deepwood Mott, the North will know they have someone to follow. Meanwhile, Jon has just gained 300 more fighters against the others at the Wall, but also a thousand more mouths to feed, as the women and children stick around to get fed by their stores. So, that's the end of the chapter. Mm, a very real issue. Food. Food. What's people gonna eat? Yeah, I love it when George does this. When he, like, mm-hmm. he brings, like... You know, who knows how, like, accurate he is. That was one of that was one of Brooke's big things, like... He's terrible with armies, because they would... An army of this side would just destroy the countryside, and they wouldn't be able to stay for very long, and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And she's right. She was right. Um, and I don't know what his real numbers are for how many sausages they have versus how many people and how long it would last. Right. Um, but I love it when he kind of brings this in and like reminds you. It makes you think about it. Yeah, yeah, they're like real world problems to be dealt with here. It's not just others and you know, you know, whatever. It's like there are consequences to bringing the wildlings through. You have mm-hmm. to feed them now. Right. But I like it when he does that. I do too. I do too. Uh, oh. Let's see. <laughs> I just I agree that. With John's really a really clever idea of sending him to the mountain clans, I agree with it. I think it's a good idea. I just can't stand. I just can't imagine Stannis like going along with their customs and being all like agreeable. Like, can yeah. you imagine him? <laughs> it's just comical to me to imagine him being like, "Oh, I love this food. Oh, what a wonderful dance you just put on for me." <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's almost as liable to make enemies of them as friends just by, like, not smiling when the daughter puts a little laurel crown on his head, right? Yeah, it's like the exact opposite of what Stannis is meant to be doing. Yeah, he's not he's not good on the PR mission. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's certainly not a good role for him, but he kind of, I don't know, I, I guess you're just supposed to believe when Martin writes... Uh, you know, yeah, I can eat their, I can eat their pork and watch their whatever, or listen to their music or whatever it is that he says. Mm-hmm. You're just supposed to kind of take that as, yeah, he's played the political game and he knows he's got to do that thing every now and then, and <laughs> yeah. he'll gr- he'll grin and bear it <laughs> uh-huh. for these men. Well, it's kind of what he's done uh, with the whole Melisandre religion, true, the lore yeah. thing. He just yeah. 
kind of takes it. Yeah. Um, but it, it'll it would be awfully interesting to see, you know, how it's going. I picture, you know, Return of the Jedi when they're with the Ewoks and Han Solo's like, what are you guys doing to me and stuff? Yeah. 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 How about Mel staying at the wall? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. What do you think? What do you think the reason is? Do you think that was prompted by her or prompted by Stannis? I don't know. I, 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 we don't, we don't get much, much insight into it at all. All We We get get nothing. I think it's just one little paragraph that just says, oh yeah, I'm staying. She's like, I'm not going. So. Yeah, and you know maybe it's. I think we've said something similar to this before. Now that she's at the wall, like she feels, she feels maybe the presence of the others and knows like this is where she belongs. This, this is where is her where fight I is. Needed to get, yeah, yeah. But still, abandoning abandoning your Azora High. The last time she did that, he suffered a major defeat. Yeah, it did not go well for him. Yeah. One thing that I thought of on on kind of the other side of the spectrum is that Stannis is probably not deaf to the whisperings and the rumblings that have gone around and followed him since Dragonstone, that that Melisandre's always by his side, hmm. and that maybe that power wouldn't his his power would not be as strong without her. That she's a big source of the power that he has, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe he's leaving her there specifically and for a specific purpose to be able to show himself off to the northerners mm. and say mm-hmm. this is me i am your king i don't need her to to liberate you guys i can do it and i can rule not to mention the fact that uh, john is already warned against you know the the religious uh consequences that could come from you know her and the relore and burning the heart trees and stuff, yeah, and uh, and stuff that could you know things that could happen because of that. So that's the other yeah. thing I thought about as to why he, she would have stayed. Yeah, yeah, it makes it it kind of makes sense. Uh, I I I think I get what you're saying. Um, if I were her, I don't know that I would agree to those terms. But if I were him, I might be eager to make those terms. Like, hey, right, mom, stay home. I need to prove myself now. Right. I'll pull up my own big boy pants. And she's like, uh, uh but I don't, I, don't I haven't sometimes even taught you, you how to match your pants very well. Yeah. Sometimes. Oh, I don't know if you're going to leave your, your right clothes socks? in the dryer long enough. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we have kids. We do. Uh, yeah. So, uh, interesting, I guess. I mean, there's not much else to say about it other than we haven't seen them apart. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, do you get the feeling John is just like this like complete ball of stress? I don't know how he does it, man. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. Well, I I do I have a theory about how he does it. Okay. I have a theory that John's John relieves himself of his tension and Masturbates. aggression. No, Matt. <laughs> I mean, I can see how you got there, because the words I chose were... All right, well played. Fair enough. Maybe. I don't know. No, I, I think I think through through Ghost. That Ghost lets him, like, take some of that aggression out of him, and goes and runs and uh-huh. hunts and does things, and, and John kind of gets a little release out of that. There, there's a moment in there when John tells Ghost to stay, when I think it's when he's going to go see Stannis. 
and instead the direwolf just runs off. He just like leaves. He just runs. Yeah. And and it's almost like uh it's almost like he, like wolf is the wolf is sensing what John would really love to do, which is run away from this meeting with Stannis. Oh, that's an interesting interpretation. Right? Yeah. And so he just feels that and goes. And that uh-huh. and that John gets some sort of sense of, of release or or you know relieves some tension through Ghost. Huh. I don't, I don't have any evidence really, but it it was interesting that Ghost just doesn't listen. Like usually those direwolves pretty much do what the owners tell them. But Ghost feels somehow more Related to John's emotions than his commands. I don't know. Well, I thought uh, Ghost did he did a couple strange things, and I put that down as one of them. Uh huh. The other was uh, him getting a little sassy with uh, Devin. Yeah. He was just baring his teeth at him and stuff, just because Devin like kind of like twitched. He was like, Ugh. "It's it's part of the same thing. It's part of the same thing." What Devin Devin said, I can't remember the exact words, but Devin said something that insinuated that uh-huh. Stannis had control over John. And John can't show that to anyone, so he can internalize that anger and that stress, or he can express it through the direwolf. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. That's an interesting That's... hypothesis. So Ghost feels that Ghost feels that emotion inside John, and he expresses it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting connection. Yeah. Yeah. Because all I could think of was Grey Wind baring his teeth at Rolf Spicer. And I was like, oh. "What's up with What's up with Devin, man? Yeah, what's up with yeah, Devin right. Seaworth? <laughs> right? He seems like such a good kid. He's got a dark secret. That's interesting. Yeah. I like it. Uh, let's see. But I'm I'm with you though. Normally, normally I, I'm always about like the ghosts no shit, man. If they don't trust somebody, you shouldn't trust them either. I don't know why I'm not getting that reaction here. I'm going with something else. I don't know mm-hmm. why that is." Yeah, it's good. It's good to think Ghost, outside the box and and come Ghost up with different different, different ideas. Yeah, definitely. Ghost is the one apart, right? Yeah, he's there's something different about him, just like there's something different about John. Yeah, he's there. Yeah, we haven't met his mom, but we love his mm. wolf. We do. Yeah, we do. Uh, he draws me in deeper every day. That's what she said, um, mm-hmm. or he said. I think that's what he said. Yeah. Uh, John says about Stannis and I just Lando Calrissian came soaring into my mind at that part this deal is getting worse all the time (laughs) yes oh Lando Vader comes and just keeps piling on yeah the the lesson to learn from Lando is if a dude shows up in a big mechanized death suit don't make a deal with him it's probably going to get worse <laughs> the problem is, is Lando really didn't have much of a choice. No, probably not. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. I think Darth Vader was going to get his way, deal or not. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I think that's all I got. Uh, what what do you think of John's plan for Stannis? Uh, get the Mountain Clans, and then go to Deepwood Mott. Yeah, as opposed to Stannis's plan of march down the King's Road and then head over to Bolton Land and take it. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you think? It's kind of similar to my thoughts that I had about Sam going to become a maester, and that being this is going to take a ton of time. Well, yeah, like to travel. It sounded like Stannis wanted to get going pretty quick to the Dreadfort. Mm-hmm. Like yep. 
within a couple of weeks at, at the most, I would imagine. It sounded like he wanted to get going. Yep. Um, and he's talking and, about and, touring the mountain clans for weeks. He's saying you'll spend weeks there in the mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because you yeah. got to go from clan to clan, and you're not just doing a 10-minute visit, and they don't just live across the street from each other. Yeah. The north is a big place, and you're going to yep. be doing a lot of traveling. Yeah. And uh, and with a lot of men, if you're going to head straight to Deepwood after that. So you got to take all your guys with you. Um, but but it's so we saw we saw John uh, prepare a battle plan at the Battle of the Wall, mm-hmm. right? Don't mm-hmm. we call that when they're fighting on top of the wall and yeah. throwing shit down on the maps and everything? Yeah, and he did a good job. He did great. But but this is the first time I think we've seen John like plan a campaign, mm-hmm. like a like a military movement. Mm-hmm. It seems like he like it came very naturally. You know, maybe he had thought about it ahead of time or something, but to get these in order to keep these 300 wildlings that he'd like to defend the wall. But it feels like he came up with it pretty well. Well, what I like about John, I agree with you, is that he's not just thinking about how to win battles. He's thinking long term. How are you going to win? The respect and the... Not how are you going to take the North back? How are you going to keep the North? Right. Right? And this is how you do it. You make friends. How to make friends and influence yeah. people or something. Exactly. John's been doing his reading. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what really impressed me. Another thing that impressed me about John is he knows a ton of just like facts about the Northern Lords. Did you know that? Like he yeah. knew everything about all of them. Well, yeah, I know Car- Car Stark is like this and this and this. And Umber's like this and this and this and this. Like he knew everything. Yeah. I don't know whether that's Ned or Lewin or right. – or who it is, but, but whatever the Stark it is, John kids, paid attention. The, yeah, the Stark kids outside of Arya seem seem very well informed about the Bannerman. Yeah, and that was really interesting yeah. to me that he knew yeah. all this. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, down to down to I know who's tied to the Boltons by marriage. Mm-hmm. Like he knows his stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Good on him. A uh, couple interesting quotes in there. Dead children come last everywhere. Uh, that the that's, truth. That's, that's about uh, inheritance. There was the one about uh, the giant slayer says that he slayed a giant. Why would he be afraid of Morzumber, a man that has a giant painted on his shield? And John says, the giant was running away. <laughs> Moors won't be. Oh, and on that point, uh, the Umbers, yeah, very clearly, uh, you hinted at this on Twitter, I uh-huh. think a little bit maybe. The Umbers very clearly play, playing both sides of the line here and being quite above board about it. Yeah. Morris, is, Morris is basically just like, look, I'm not fighting my brother. We're on both sides. Uh, you know, offer us pardons and we'll fight for you. And then we can be on the winning side either way. Mm-hmm. Good job. Yeah, my thing on Twitter was I just can't tell the two of them apart. I can't remember which one is which. Yeah, like yeah, I remember uh, it's Hawther is uh, Horsbane, and yes. Moore's is Crow's Eye, but Crow's uh, food. Crow's food. Excuse me. Crow food. I'm thinking of yeah. Euron now. Um, but I I can't remember like what they. I can never remember like what they do in the story. Like right now, yeah. like I'm always like, which one was at dinner with Ramsay? Was that that's Horsbane because he's still with Ramsay. Uh, I just 
Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Pretty sure. Yeah. Horace Bain is still with him. He stayed with him, right? And is riding with him now, and etc. Am I wrong? We can look it up. Uh, that's all I had for John. Okay, let us go to Tyrion. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion Lannister or Imp, if you please. The mists of the sorrows hang deep and thick as Tyrion and co. make their way down the Rhoyne, approaching Croyane, a once beautiful, rich, and bustling festival city. It's now desolate, destroyed, and nearly deserted. You see, a thousand years ago, during what was called the Second Spice War between the Rhoynish and Volantis, along with Valyrian allies, Croyane was taken by the Volantines and Valyrians. Uh, captured and hung in a cage, Prince Garen, who is the leader of the Rhoynish, called upon Mother Rhoyne to curse the invaders, and that very night, the waters of the Rhoyne rose in a fury, destroying the city and all in it. There's some say that uh, grayscale came into effect, too, at that point. Garen's curse, it is said, yet lingers, manifesting itself in the fog. Uh, the spirits of the dead lurk beneath the water, hungry and hating the quick and the living. Tyrion's studies have led him to believe that Garen's curse is actually just grayscale, the disease that slowly causes human flesh to harden, calcify, and crack, eventually leading to death, if, uh, if not treated at a very young age. Men suffering from the later stages of grayscale, called stone men, inhabit the ruins of Croyane, wandering the mists as they slowly harden to death. Most of these guys are not violent by nature, but the later stages of grayscale can lead to madness. So that, combined with the fact that grayscale can, as uh, Griff points out, be contracted simply by touching or maybe being close to someone afflicted with it, leads Tyrion's party to be very, very wary. All of this is pretty creepy. In fact, to me, this is one of like just like the the creepiest chapters in the whole book maybe not suspense filled yep. and everything but just like in terms of just pure creepiness this is creepy and you all know how i hate horror flicks so anyways we're given just the right sense of everything will be all right as they approach the bridge of dreams which is a massive 40 foot high stone bridge at the southern end of croyane uh seeing it means they're almost free of the sorrows but it's not exactly a place where you want to ta stop and take a selfie. Stone men, for whatever reason, love hanging out on this bridge, and we all know how volatile they can be. Halden is reasonably confident they will not be attacked. In fact, uh, because of the fog, they may not even be noticed. But Griff nevertheless counsels them to use torches to fight the stone men back if they do attack. And for Pete's sake, don't let them touch you. So Griff has just commanded young Griff to take Lamore below deck until they are safely away, and an order which young Griff does not take sitting down when they pass beneath the Bridge of Dreams safely. Phew. No harm done. That oh. was a lot of build up for nothing. Oh my gosh. Uh, however, that's what she said, um, we do mm. get a revelation. Couple revelations actually is young Griff 
uh, complained about not wanting to go below deck to safety, Tyrion remarks that he must, for he is everything. And now that they are safely away, Tyrion explains that if anyone else in the party were to die, it would be sad. But were young Griff to go, well, that would ruin everything. Why would a sellsword son be taught by a septa, a half-maester, and a hedge knight? It's almost like he's being prepared. And also, this kid's got noble features, Tyrion remarks, for a dead boy. And there the reveal is made. Young Griff is apparently Aegon, the youngest son of Rhaegar Targaryen, the same who was killed by Gregor Clegane during the sack of King's Landing and laid at the feet of Tywin Lannister wrapped in crimson. Tyrion also reveals who he is. He's Tyrion and what he's done to his dear father. But we're not done. To cap off this night of reveals, who is Griff? But John Connington, former hand of King Aerys and one of Rhaegar's closest friends. Of course he would be the right guy to raise Rhaegar's son. Everyone's reeling from these new reveals when all of a sudden they notice something. The Bridge of Dreams. Up what? ahead. The same bridge they just passed under not minutes before. It's right in front of them again. It's in inexplicable. Inconceivable. Their sails weren't raised. No crazy steering. They were just letting the river carry them down. How was the Bridge of Dreams in front of them again? Mother Royne runs how she will, proclaims Yandri. And up ahead as they approach the bridge, again, the stone men began to wail. As the party approaches the bridge, two great crashes on the deck. Two stone men, hungry for the living. Duck fights one back, forcing him into the water. The second puts up more of a fight, but eventually falls victim to the swords, poles, and torches of Halden, Duck, and Griff, slash John Connington. But wait, there's a third, and he's going straight for young Griff, slash Aegon. The boy freezes with fear, unable to even move, but the closest man to him leaps to the rescue, and that man was actually a half-man. Tyrion drives back the stone man with a torch, eventually charging into the half-rock, plunging both of them into the reeking roin. Tyrion feels the stone man's hands clutching and grabbing at him, and he thinks, there are worse ways to die. <laughs> really? Um, and his last thoughts before water fills his lungs are of how he truly perished long ago in King's Landing and how he would haunt the Seven Kingdoms after his death. They would not love me living, Tyrion thinks, so let them dread me dead. And that's the end of the chapter. Total creep-tasticness. So it is. That that really was a creepy chapter. It is, and, and also somewhat hauntingly beautiful. Mm. Uh, the, uh, we don't do show here, but the show didn't do this at all, did they? Like, they skipped all this stuff? No, um, but it's changed dramatically. I just meant, to, uh, like, did they did they take a chance to, like, do all this fog and this river and, like, this hauntingly beautiful scene or no? Sort of. Um, and there is Stone Men, but it's with just Tyrion and Jorah. Oh, yeah, okay. I just wondered if they got the visual down. That's something I'd like to see. Uh, there might uh, have been, and I don't, I, I just don't remember. I've only watched it once, so I really yeah. don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, it's creepy as hell, but also just kind of, I don't know, I'm, I've always been kind of a sucker for fog, you know, just kind of, <laughs> okay, just kind of, well, it's just, it's unnatural, right? When you see like, when you see this level of fog, just kind of, 
mm-hmm. on the world. It's, it's just, it's different. It's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It can be beautiful. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, uh, my, the first note I have on this chapter is the magical world of George and just how unexplained everything is. You know, mm-hmm. Like I've read series, I've read series where the magic is extremely well explained, like how it works down to the fact where like the authors like figured out some sort of scientific way to explain it all. Um, you know, even uh, the King Killer Chronicles, he does a pretty good job of like everything kind of based in reason and, and, and logic. Mm-hmm. And George just doesn't bother with like any of that here. It's just like, well, yep, the river's starting over. It's not like this is a, another bridge where people are like, oh, is it, is it the same bridge? Or is it another one? Like, they see several landmarks that they saw before. This winding stair that comes and repeats itself. A hand yeah, reaching the, out of the water. The two uh, two like, fingers, yeah. Mm-hmm. They've basically gone old-school Nintendo game where running through one side of the screen brings you back through the other end of the screen. Like, they've started over at a section of the river that they already used. Like, yep. And there's it's no like explanation teleportation. whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, and it's maddening to me when you just get no no explanation of the magic at all. It drives mm-hmm. me bonkers. And what's funny is is this this really isn't discussed that much in the fandom. No, Yet it's one of the crazier instances of of magic. It yeah, really is. I mean, yeah, I, what, because what can you say? They don't. Like, the characters don't ever explore it. They don't believe it, and they're all aghast, but there's like, well, well I guess we're doing this again. Like, they don't... They, they don't have time to, right? They yeah, they don't. They but, have, like, yeah. minutes, and then yeah. they're upon them, and, and then this happens, and we'll see yeah. what happens next. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's so crazy. And how George is able to weave this magical craziness happening along with these reveals of who certain people are. Yeah. and. What a weird, what weird timing! It's just like yeah. you're gonna bring this up now. Like maybe that's why they didn't notice because they were so like, oh, he's him, oh, he's him. That yeah, that uh, they didn't notice them being teleported back, however <laughs> yeah, many <maybe>. yards. <laughs> and I, I remember the first the first time I read this, I didn't understand why the stone men were attacking at all. Mm-hmm. Like, are they? Are, what are they after? Like, what would you say they do here? Like, what what do they do? Why are they gathered here to begin with? And like, what they're just harassing the ships just cause, or they want to sup on their flesh, or they're looking for the food stores on their ship? Like, what are they? What are they doing? I think there's a couple different ideas, but the answer is we don't know. Um, and the the answers are given, or those ideas are given in chapter as as sort of theories or myths one is that the stone men um kind of lust for the living so i don't know they're like drawn to to blood or something like that i don't Mm -hmm. know um they talk about how grayscale leads to madness so i don't know that they're in their right mind when they're doing it it kind of almost reminds me of whites Mm. I, I thought back to the to the white that Jon Snow fought in J.R. Mormont's chamber, mm-hmm. and how there, he doesn't he's it's like he's coming to do something, but he's still kind of a zombie at the same time. Like he doesn't know exactly what he's doing, but yeah, he's doing something. Yeah, but I I don't know, I don't know. 
uh, they talk about this mythical shrouded lord who's apparently the leader of the stone men. Like, yeah. is he sending them out? Is this a planned attack? Or is this just them lost, having lost their minds and just attacking arbitrarily? I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Do you have any ideas? No, I just, I, I tried to think, like, what's the difference between the first time they went under and were unmolested and the second time? Uh-huh. And the only thing I could, I don't have any, there's no evidence. The only thing I could think of is, well, what just changed? Well, what just changed is they just had a big fight on the boat about these identities of these people. Right. And were loud and obnoxious about it. They heard And either A, attention. got their attention, or B, they are sentient beings and they realize there's someone of importance on the boat. And were they then able to teleport them back? Right. Is there, did, yeah, do they have some sort of magical powers and then... Also, does Shireen have them? Mm. Or, I don't She's know. She's got grayscale. <laughs> I don't know. We're way, off, we're way off in the boonies of theory now. But, um, yeah, I don't... I, don't I, I just... It always struck me as weird that it's like, oh, yeah, none of them saw them or attacked, and then the second time through, it's like, oh, three of them made it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It always, it's always struck me as strange. Yep. And maybe there's nothing to it. Um... What did you think of the timing of Tyrion's reveal? It was odd. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it does. It doesn't. It doesn't. Like, maybe a, Tyrion's dramatic, you know, like, and he's got a, a flair for like a right. big moment. But also, sometimes it seems like he's more scheming, and you'd think like he would have taken an opportunity to like use this reveal to get something. Uh huh. But it seems like you know, he's to, like just play doing on it someone. Yeah. 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 It it is an it is an odd time to do it. Yeah. Um yeah, you'd think that he would reveal that at a time that would be in some way advantageous to him. Yeah. But it, it's, it's just in the middle of this thing. I don't yeah. know. Get yeah. your minds off of how scared we all are. So Yeah. Hey. Distraction. Let me tell you who I figured out you you are. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean, Tyrion drowns here. Maybe. His water fill is his lungs filled with water. Yeah, I mean, so. I feel like George has done this to us before uh, with other characters, but also just with Tyrion. Aren't, aren't aren't you basically led to believe that he's dead at the Battle of the Green Fork and the Blackwater and the Blackwater like too? Yeah, this is like his third death. <laughs> and three three is about a, three is kind of like a magic number in this series, right? Three betrayals, that kind of thing. Can't keep pulling this over our head, though, Gurm. Yeah, yeah. three I mean, is I, magic. I, three Kettleblack brothers. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not gonna. I'm, <laughs> I'm just not gonna mince words. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but don't believe that he's dead. Like I don't. I, I don't think anyone's expected to really believe it at this point. Do you? My 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 uh, rule of thumb for if someone being dead in this theory in in this series is I have to see their head on a spike. In order to believe they're <laughs> yeah. dead, yeah. untarred. It's just yeah. got to be obviously their head yeah. for, me, for me to believe they're actually dead. Or some huge funeral procession or something where there like tons of people are seeing it. Yeah, yeah. they're seeing a body laying there. That's true right. too. Yeah. yeah, see Tywin's stinking body. Yeah, and I'll believe he's dead. But, yeah. yeah, 
Uh, I only have one more thing. Um, and I say it because in the last episode, uh, I talked about Tyrion kind of maybe being on the road to recovery. And mm-hmm. seems like he's maybe getting a little bit of his groove back. Mm-hmm. And nah, man, I don't know. The, like, there's a little there's a little paragraph in there where he's considering poisoning Griff. Mm-hmm. Just because he finds him annoying. Right. He's like, if only he ate more, I could slip him these mushrooms that I have. <laughs> Do you think he's serious, though? Like, I think I he read is. that too, and I was like, oh, I don't know. Well, maybe not. <laughs> if I, he's just annoyed. I don't know. I, I feel like he is serious, and I feel like <laughs> I feel like I gave him too much credit for coming out of his uh, coming out of his funk last last chapter. Mm-hmm. I did find that kind of funny. It was amusing. Uh, I'll, I'll turn that back on you a little bit with my final note too, is, is, um, I did notice a difference though, in how he looks at the event that he keeps coming back to, which is the privy with his father. Mm -hmm. Um, he equates the creepiness of the sorrows, the overall creepy feel of it to being in that privy and watching his father die. Almost like, like before he almost took this really grotesque amusement and thinking back onto onto watching dad die at least that's what he projected mm. is like and now yeah, it's more like got a squeezy, and now it's kind of like oh i feel creepy and he equates that to being he's like it reminded him of watching his father die in the privy i don't remember what the exact words are but which part reminded him of watching his father die be just being in the sorrows the feeling he had oh. in the sorrows and kind of that creepy feeling that he had there i see so you're 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 arguing that he has progressed in some way because he's no longer feeling malice and even maybe a bit of joy in that murder. Right. He's now feeling those feelings are and kind of yeah. gross about it. Right. Even when he's thinking about Taisha and Jamie and that whole thing again, mm-hmm. yeah. I got more of a sense of kind of like wistfulness and sadness. Yeah. Like it's definitely he's not over it. Yeah, uh, but not like that vengeance, that just gross, yeah. unhealthy vengeance that he was yep. feeling for the first couple chapters. No, that's fair. I agree so, with that. Yeah. Hmm. So I mean, maybe so not to take it back to the magic, but maybe the ma- so either growth, good point, mm-hmm. Matt, or B, he's in a place called the fucking sorrows, and maybe it's <laughs> magical and makes you feel sorrowful I'm home. about things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is right where I belong right now. <laughs> well, but ma- what I mean is, like, maybe magically it makes him feel sorrowful about things instead of angry. In- yeah, instead of angry. You don't see that on any of the other characters' faces, but you don't have their POV either. Uh-huh. We do know that uh, young Griff is is getting a little sassy, which we haven't yeah. seen much of yet. And also freezing up. Yeah. For the prince that was promised, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, he... Certainly didn't uh, didn't look to hold much promise as a swordsman right. there. Yep, it's different when you're facing the real thing. Yeah, and not just uh, Raleigh Duckfield. Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. So, uh, uh, just quickly, this Griffin rose from the ashes like a phoenix and became a dragon. That's the episode title for you guys. It took me a minute to to think of that. I was like, what does the phoenix mean when you sent the the outline to me? 
just because, you know, everybody assumed he was dead. Mm-hmm. He's risen from those ashes here. Yeah. And he's a dragon. That's the idea. It was a stretch. I didn't have a lot of good episode titles. No, it's it's great. I love it. Yeah. All right, ready to move on? Let's go to James. James. Well, we got, our sec- we got our second uh, question and answer oh, question here. My mistake. Now, this one is completely unrelated to Song of Ice and Fire, so bear with us for two seconds. We'll give a quick answer for this one. Yeah. This question is, who are Ray's parents? Yeah. Also, again, from Tana. Thanks, Tana. Mm-hmm. I answered first last time, so why don't you go first this time? Well, there's lots of theories out there. Uh I like I like to involve the uh, the animated series uh, episodes into the major canon, so I'm going with Luke and Sabine Wren. Um, I am going with Luke as well, and uh, I don't know who the mom is. Mara Jade. <laughs> All right, expanded universe for <laughs> expanded you suckers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we'll move to Jamie. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand, Jamie Lannister? Got a thing for sister, gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying, dead, it doesn't matter, reason. Bottom line is sister treason. At deep inside, could there be something only if you could see a hero? Could that be? Said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister. Say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie. Said Jamie Lannister. All right. Believe it or not, true believers, 320 goddamn pages into A Feast for Crows, we are still dealing with Tywin Lannister's demise. This time, it's just his body leaving with an honor guard of about a billion people as Jamie waves farewell. A personal goodbye this time, nothing to do with kings guarding or sister pleasing. He meets his uncle Kevin, and there's some friction there. Kevin asking if Cersei has any new orders for him, kind of in a tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic way. Jamie insinuates that both he and Cersei have better things to worry about than ordering Kevin around. But Jamie kind of bites his tongue a little bit. He's trying to be a better servant to the realm these days, and so suggests that Kevin repair his relationship with Cersei before he leaves. But Kevin insists he has nothing really to say. Cersei wants to rule. Let her. I'll just go tend to my son and his wedding. Jamie tries another tack, warning of Sander in the Liverlands. He's apparently been, uh, you know, wreaking havoc up there. And uh, uh, and another, indicating that Kevin would make a better hand than a corraller of Sandor and the other outlaws. Kevin, of course, replies with some hurt honor that he could catch the hound no problem. Ugh. Hashtag Lannister dick measuring is annoying. Anyway, Kevin's position... That he'll be hand if Cersei leaves has not changed. He's still sticking with that. Jamie, for a moment, has a section where he fears for his uncle's life with this conflict simmering, wondering what Cersei is capable of really doing. Like, will she go after him? So Jamie makes his way towards Cersei. He gets a little wistful watching the other knights at some jousting practice, um, and he thinks about some of the other recent goings on in King's Landing. For one thing, the roses have been plucked. Uh, the half the Tyrells. Uh, went with Garland back to Highgarden. The other half basically went to besiege Storm's End. Uh, and also, a Lannister force is about to take Dragonstone from the skeleton force, not literal skeletons, a uh, small force that Stannis has left behind to hold Dragonstone. So, he gets to Cersei, and she be drunk. 
an increasingly common state that Jamie has noticed with Cersei. She's drinking a lot these days. And she's in good humor because Bron Bron has named his son via lawless Tyrion. Lady oh. Merryweather is the... Oh, Bron. Love you, Bron boy. Yeah, we know you do, Matt. Miss you, Lady Merryweather is, is there, of course. She's joking, ingratiating herself with the queen. Maester Pycelle's there, commiserating about the news. And Tommen sits in his plumpness, just kind of hanging out. Cersei glows with a sinister plan for a, a gift for the new Tyrion, and it reminds Jaime of the ecstasy he saw in her eyes as the wildfire reflected there during the burning of the Tower of the Hand. And he abstracted from that, it reminds him directly of Ares Targaryen. He remembers how Ares would rape his wife after burning someone. At one point, Jaime asked the senior dairy of the King's Guard if they should step in and protect the queen. They have a job to protect the royal family. Not from him, Derry would reply. Anyway, he pries himself from his dark memories and asks for a word with Cersei alone. First thing first, sis, this Taina Merriweather chick is a spy, you know that, right? Of course, Cersei knows that. It's under control. I only feed her what I want. But then she kind of undercuts that by indicating that Taina's first priority is her own son, not her loyalty to Marjorie, implying maybe that Cersei thinks she can flip Taina to her side? In which case, maybe she's giving away more information than she should? I don't know. It, it seems it seems like it's maybe a little out of control for Cersei. She tells, uh, apparently Lady Merriweather tells Cersei all sorts of things. Just one example, that Elena keeps old gold coins from previous regime in her wheelhouse. We've seen one of those before. See if you can remember when. Next, Lord Kevin. You could use him, he insists. She disagrees. She has other allies now. Kevbo is done in King's Landing. You do need a hand, but I govern the land here. I only need someone to carry out my orders. I don't need a really strong hand to rule. A lost cause found, Jamie moves on again. He has heard of Air, that Arain Waters is going to be master of ships, but he's just a child. He's a young kid. No, no, Cersei says. Arain is strong and vigorous. He spent half his life on ships, and father was even younger when he became hand. Okay, Jamie moves on again. But trusting Hallen and Kyburn? Hallen the Pyromancer and Kyburn? Hey, Cersei says, they're loyal to me. Jamie pleads one more time to try to keep some of her old friends close, but she recoils, reminding Jamie that she begged for his help, and he refused her, finally just telling him to get out. He does, and retreats to his quarters where he consults the White Book, where he's interrupted by Loras Tyrell. Loras, to be honest, is completely uninterested in the history of the White Book. They're for maesters, he insists. He prefers porn, to be honest. Seriously, he admits to his boss that he likes books with evocative images. Uh, anyway, when quizzed, Loras does actually know some of the history of the more notable members. No pun intended, but go ahead and think about it. Notable members. Uh, but he's stumped when Jamie quizzes on less-known names. Good and bad, maybe not best or worst, but they still served. Several are referenced, but Jamie lands on Kristen Cole. They called him the Kingmaker. Uh, so take that however you will. End of chapter. That's where Jamie's thoughts stop. Such an such a, an odd way to end a chapter. But very, okay. very odd way to end a chapter. Um, I don't know. Uh, do we, we can we can talk about that if you want. Sure. Do you want to talk? Do you want to talk about Kristen Colemaker? Kristen Colemaker. 
Well, or sorry, Chris, Kristen Cole <laughs> Kingmaker. Jeez. Uh, he was a fascinating guy. Um, do we want to review his history a little bit? Uh, I mean, maybe like really briefly. Really briefly. So he was a member of the King's Guard, right? Became Lord, mm-hmm. uh, Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Yep. And he was, oh, we could tell all sorts of stories, but he was. Uh, In love with the Queen, right? They think. They think. But uh, yeah, when when King Viserys died, he named his daughter, he had named his daughter Rhaenyra heir. And she was planning on, and that goes against all the customs and everything of the Seven Kingdoms and the Andals that boys will inherit. But Rhaenyra was the oldest, so she was named the heir. Uh, however, Viserys in his older age did end up having another boy named Aegon, who was younger than Rhaenyra. And uh, so when Viserys finally died, war broke out. It became known as the, the Dance of the Dragons, the Civil War. Uh, Rhaenyra, the older versus Aegon. Now, Kristen Cole was originally Rhaenyra's pal. They were buddy-buddy all growing up and stuff. Well, she, he was like 15 years older than her, um, but he was but, her yeah. sworn sword. He was the one that protected her. He was like her specific Kingsguard member. Um, but for whatever reason, they had a falling out. There's differing accounts. Mm-hmm. And he ended up supporting Aegon in the Dance of the Dragons. And uh, more than that, just supporting, like propping him up, like he was, he was kind yeah. of the guy. He was kind of the guy that pushed that forward, right? As uh, like in the very first council meeting after Viserys died, where the small yeah. council was going to decide who was going to be the new king, only one person voted against Aegon and supported Rhaenyra, and Kristen Cole slit his throat right there, yeah, in the council chamber. So yeah. <laughs> He definitely uh, pushed it forward. But yeah. Yeah. That's who Kristen Cole was. So interesting. I mean, maybe we'll talk more about this in Davos After Dark. Um, interesting that that's the way the chapter ends. Just Right. I don't know. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with anything that was going on in the rest of the chapter to me. <laughs> Unless I'm missing some obvious reference or something. Kristen Cole, Kingmaker. Yeah. Huh? Right. Could potentially be some very interesting foreshadowing. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. Um Yeah, well maybe we'll talk about that in Davos. Davos after, after dark. dark. Let's do some yeah. let's let's save that for Davos after dark. Yeah. yeah. Um look, remember a few episodes ago when we talked about I think it was at Tommen's wedding to Marjorie, we talked about Cersei like looking around the room and realizing how old and ineffective her allies were. And that she needed new ones. <laughs> this is the chapter, right? Cersei the, got her groove back. <laughs> this is it. It's it, the, the her her kind of council of support is Taino Merriweather, Arain Waters, Kyburn, Pycelle, the Kettleblacks, young Lannister cousins, basically, right. um, and Hallen the Pyromancer. That's that that's her that's her new crew. She's moving forward with these new alliances and. Everybody and else all because they're the loyal to her. Right. Forget exactly. forget who would actually be an effective like government official. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Although although Jamie notes, uh, you know, we have Jamie's POV here, he notes that he thinks his Lannister cousins are good dudes, 
Trust like, them. They'll do the job. Right? Yeah. 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 They'll do the job. Yeah. But he does question pretty much everybody else on the list. Yeah. Kevin is easily, I think, the best possible choice for hand and even regent. But yeah. that ain't happening. So. Yeah. And you know what? Good for him. Go home, Kevin. Get out of the quagmire of King's Landing. Help, help your son, you know, get his house in order in Derry. And hopefully you don't have to fight uh, the stuff going down over there. Yep. The raiders and stuff that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I just wish Kevin the best. <laughs> you would. Yep. Go be a dad. Yeah, he's a... Uh... He's an interesting case. I don't want to dwell on it for too long. I, you know, you, you get the sense that he's kind of one of those guys that's just always been in the shadows, but had he not been in the shadows, he could have been much more. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what's that? There's that uh, terrible Nicolas Cage movie, The Family Man, maybe? Where, like, you know, it's the old story where, like, a ghost comes and, like, shows you what your life could have been like if you did this other thing at this crucial moment in your life. Yeah. And, uh... In the main in the main world, he's like this uber powerful lawyer or executive counsel of some kind. I can't remember exactly the job, but there's this guy underneath him who's like this kind of sniveling servant, obsequious guy. And when the ghost takes him back to live the other life, uh, you know, he's like a tire salesman or something. This other guy has risen to exactly the kind of guy he was, this uber powerful lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you wonder if Kevin was capable of being more like a Tywin. You know, and running the show. Right. If he had not been in Tywin's shadow. Yeah, you have to wonder. You know, one step in, in a different direction could change the course of someone's history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and you don't get the impression, though, that Kevin really ever lusted for that, though. No. That he's he's kind of content with his station and, no, and but, he's content but... to go do what he wanted to. But expectations are an interesting thing. Like, yeah, when you're five or six or seven or eight, and uh-huh. and you know that your brother is the one doing all these things, you kind of resign yourself to not want them. You don't. You don't even try, right? Yeah, it's tabula rasa, right? Like you're you're a blank slate, and and you, you know, I don't fully believe in that, but you know, you get written on what the opportunities are, and that affects who you become. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Could. Yep. Yeah. And but 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 the point being is that that's okay. Oh sure. Like if I'm not judging him. Right. If he if if he's happy with who he is as the tire salesman. <laughs> yeah. And great. But I I guess what he I'm is saying an is character. we've seen we've seen a few moments since Tywin's death where he stands up to Cersei in a way that like that would have been Tywin's role before. Right. And he stands up to her and he shows her some attitude, and and he's like, "I'll rule if you get out of the way." Some major it, sass. Yeah. yeah, he's kind of he's kind of stepping up to the plate and being like, "You know, I'll do this because right. now the family needs me to do it." Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. It, it it is almost kind of like he's he's almost like he's trying to burn bridges. <laughs> get me like, out of here! Like Jamie's like trying to joke around with him, and he's like, "Nope, not yeah. doing it." Yeah. And then, like he he knew that Cersei wasn't going to accept his his terms, and, yeah. <laughs> and he throws the uh, 
the the um him knowing about their relationship and both of their faces it's almost like he's trying to get kicked out yeah yeah i can see that yep i don't know kevin's very polarizing yeah Circe is frightening as well uh yes ecstasy in her eyes according to jamie she's going completely nuts completely nuts the alcohol isn't probably helping no not at all uh and you know her son died in her arms her daughter is in dorn it's and and she's just absolutely paranoid which is you know and she's found solace in drinking which yeah like you said probably isn't making it better she's nuts dude I don't know what else to say about her I don't know if she is I don't know if she is yet nuts I feel like oh I think she's nuts you think I think she is I, I think she's showing some awful judgment and she's been kind of um, you know, uh, herded, herded toward this corner that she's kind of protecting with, uh-huh. you know, with with all she's got. But I don't, I don't know if she's crazy. Just like the misjudging the, everything. I think the the word that you used was ecstasy, and I liked that. The ecstasy I in think her Jamie eyes. Oh, was it lifted from the book? Well, I'll I give think you so. Credit. <clears throat> the ecstasy in her eyes. Is what gives it away for me. Of just yeah, watching I've seen that something burn. burn. Yeah, yeah. That's that's and, what and really also makes and also worried. and also at I I think what he's doing is drawing a parallel. I can't remember exactly, but drawing a parallel between that moment and what he sees in her eyes right now as she's thinking about this sinister little gift to send. Mm-hmm. It's like that that level. It's not just mischief, right? It's like this ecstasy of causing others harm or discomfort or. Mm-hmm. embarrassment mm-hmm. right that she's like relishing it yeah which is completely where he's not at right now no yeah he's in he's in a different place it is interesting he's, though with, with he's Jamie. still an a-hole though <laughs> yeah he's like he he's getting over cersei herself it, it feels like he is but he can't get over Tyrion's statement about the people she slept with yes you know like he's over her but not the act of uh, "quote unquote" unfaithfulness, yeah. right? <laughs> and I thought that was interesting. I'm not a psychologist; I can't explain it, but, but it's funny. But why is he more angry at Lancel than he is at Cersei? Oh, he should Lancel. be angry at her, not him. Right? He's taking it out on Lancel because he's like, yeah. "Lancel, look at me," and she's yeah. going for Lancel. Look at him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know what we're referring to, because I don't think I... It wasn't in my summary. I took it out just because my summary's damn long. Uh, he says to Lancel about his upcoming marriage. It, it's it, This is this woman that he's marrying is a widow, so she's been married before. And he says, I'm sure she will be pleased to show you what goes where. And this is to a cousin who, yes, he slept with your sister. So incest, you know, bad. Um you know, took your normal incest pot bad. Not that maybe he, uh, he knew. Uh, but, like, maybe you should blame your sister. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
that yep he uh he's at he's 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 at his jp best in this chapter he A japes bit. with uh with kevin. lancel he japes yeah. with kevin yeah he 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 makes the runaround and it's yeah. funny though he's like uh uh, he's kind of he's kind of actually going for something serious. He kind of wants to have a serious conversation with Kevin, but then he he like sabotages himself by joking around with him. Like you know, <laughs> Kevin, you know he's not gonna go for the, that kind yeah. of stuff. Like that's not the way to talk to him. Like, yeah, come on, Jamie, come yeah. on. But it was funny. He's also he's performing an interesting role for the family here. I mean, he's been saying we've been in his brain, and he's been saying. No, I'm all about the Kingsguard now. Like this is what I do. Mm-hmm. But he's still, he's still trying to help Cersei here. Oh he yeah. Goes and offers her counsel, mm-hmm. like telling her, you know, what he thinks. She didn't ask for it. He's just telling her. Right. And he's trying to help the family. So he's not. Well, he. Well, I think he's over Cersei as a, an object of affection. Um, he's he's still not. Over being a Lannister and helping the family. Oh, certainly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he can explain that away by saying, I'm the Lord Commander of the King's Guard, which means I'm on the small council, which means that part of my job is to counsel, you know, yep, maybe. her being the Queen Regent. But yeah, it, it, that's not the specific reason he's doing it. He's doing it because yeah. she's family. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else here? I do not. I actually didn't have very many notes on this chapter. But... Yeah, I have a lot of notes, but they're not. They're not. They're not great. I guess the only thing I have is uh, Tana Merriweather maybe being in league with Varys. Who knows the, who that? Because of the coin thing, feeding info too. Yeah. Well, the co- the coin story leads you to believe that. I mean, we we know it was Rugen, who we know is Varys. Right, mm-hmm. that's been revealed. I'm not spoiling anything. I don't think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he left that old high, um, coin of the gardener king yeah. mm-hmm. uh, in the cell. Mm-hmm. And we know, you know, it could be a coincidence, but we get a story about now these older, older regime gold coins that uh, you know that that are in the wheelhouse supposedly of Aletta, and she's just planted that thought in Cersei's head, right, to so. Discord, further discord. To sow further discord, and maybe, you know, she's working with Varys in that way, maybe. Yep, perhaps. I don't have any evidence other than suspicion. Yep. Okay, uh, move on? Let's move on. Okay. All right, everybody, it's time for the Davos After the Dark. Uh, Thanks for joining us. It's time to to enter that fun realm of spoilers, so if you don't want to be spoiled uh, and you're reading at our pace... Just uh, turn it off now, come back in three weeks, or we'll have five more chapters uh, of A Feast with Dragons for you. Now it is time for Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Uh, Let's start with Kristen Cole. Mm Mm-hmm. Just finish up that thought. Yeah. It's fresh on our minds. Yeah. (laughs) Uh... Kingmaker. Mm-hmm. Jamie's kind of a kingmaker already. Joffrey, Tommen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He's 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 made some kings with them loins. Mm-hmm. He has. So that is uh, a more literal um 
interpretation of that. Also kind of boring. Yeah. A little bit. I wondered I wondered if maybe it's not about Jamie at all. And it's about Loris. Loris. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where I'm going with it. Um but that this is a an example of somebody that Loris could become. Mm-hmm. As we've seen the discord between uh Tyrell and Lannister. We know that the Tyrells are trying to kind of grab power. And can Loris somehow, you know, make a queen out of his sister? Right. And I don't, yeah. I don't know what. I, I thought of that as well. And and what's interesting about that idea is the fact that it's Jamie bringing it up yeah. after he's just had this this very revealing episode with his sister. And is this Jamie planting something in Loris's mind? Hmm. Which would turn Jamie against Cersei, obviously. But you you mean actually like he's planting something in Loris's mind to kill Cersei? To to for Loris to become the king or queen maker. Yeah. But killing Cersei wouldn't make anyone a king or a queen. Oh, I'm not right? saying kill her necessarily. Oh. But I'm saying with with what Jamie's experiencing from Cersei right now, he's thinking, you know, she's really not the lady to rule. Oh, I see. I see. Kind of Family embolden, be darned. Emboldening him. Plant, plant a seed in, in Loras right. to say, something could be done here. But Jamie and, is still want to, wants to be perceived as loyal to the family and everything. Yeah. Uh, but if Loras comes in and, and engineers some sort of takeover, well. Yeah. It's different. Well, so unless you've got more on this, maybe that's a, a direct transition to Loris himself. I had a, a note to just talk about him real quick. Um, do you have anything else before we do that? Um, no. I I, I just no. wanted to say, you know, where, where we I think the last thing we've heard of Loris in the series is that he's supposedly recovering from very bad burns. At uh, Dragonstone, <laughs> mm-hmm. he uh, he took two arrows, right, or two crossbow bolts, and then like a mace to the chest, and then had like boiling oil, yeah, shot at him, right, or spilled on him, yeah, or he didn't. He just got like messed up, according to one source, yeah, that source being Arain Waters, who eventually ditches Cersei. Oh, he does. I don't remember that. What uh, what's that story? Yeah, after uh, she is imprisoned, yeah, he uh, she she asks about him to somebody, and they're like, "Oh no, he took off with your ships, <laughs> with the ships that he was having built." Well, so so where I'm going is, I wonder if this whole Kristen Cole Kingmaker thing mm-hmm. ties into Loris's somewhat sketchy status at Dragonstone, right? And what's he really doing there? Mm-hmm. And is this part of a? It almost feels too obvious that this is part of some sort of coup or or event. Yeah, just to be very explicit for people listening, what Scad is suggesting and what I'm hopping onto as well is we get the story of the drag the 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 taking of Dragonstone, where Loras Tyrell is apparently injured to the point of death and a thousand knights die. We're getting that story from one person, our rainwaters, uh, and we don't know if it really happened. 
Yeah. Hmm. There's a couple options. Loris, remember why Loris wanted to hurry and take Dragonstone, right? So I don't remember. Because Paxter Redwine's fleet was was holding Dragonstone under siege. Oh yes, right. And he wanted that fleet to be to go and deal with the Ironborn problem, which right. is occurring in the Reach now, his his homeland. So right. Cersei agreed, if you can go take Dragonstone, I'll let you take the the ships over to the mm-hmm. Reach. And so Loras wanted to get that done as quickly as possible. It could be possible, although I don't know how you would fake this, that he didn't even go to Dragonstone. <laughs> yeah, they just took the ships. <laughs> they just took the ships and booked it over to yeah. the Reach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which would be which would be funny. <clears throat> yeah. There's some evidence to that. Uh, Miranda Royce, uh, uh, clear in Sansa's POVs later on in these books, tells Sansa that they received word that River Run had yielded. Remember to Jamie that happens later in the books. Yep, but. Dragonstone had not yielded yet was the information that they'd received in the veil. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously yep. the veil is very apart from everything. So information could have been disseminated late or incorrectly or whatever. So that's it's not, not that apart sure from Dragonstone. It's like the closest sure. thing to Dragonstone. Yeah. So there is that bit of information that explicitly says, but Dragonstone has not yielded yet. Yeah. That's interesting. I had forgotten <laughs> that. Laura, or, or the other option is that Loras did take Dragonstone, is uninjured, and has just been hanging out there looking for stuff and, I don't know, maybe found or some th- dragon eggs or something like that. Or a third option. I don't mm. know how this would work. But they've actually gone to Dragonstone under peace terms mm-hmm. and have allied themselves with Stannis in some with way. Dragonstone. I don't, yeah. I don't know how that would work. Stannis isn't there. Uh, he's left uh, some bastard in charge. I can't remember which Roland one. Roland Storm. Thank you, Roland Storm, uh, in charge, who is uh, supposedly a fierce warrior. I don't remember much about him other than that, um, a cap- and a capable dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what I don't know what they would gain. I haven't put a ton of thought into that theory about them, sure. you know, getting together. But mm-hmm. um, you know, take down the Lannisters. You'd have to get in bed. I don't mean literally. Uh, get in bed with Stannis. I don't know if that helps anybody, but mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I, I guess I guess the overarching thing for me is the details are too scarce. I don't really believe Loras is badly yeah. burned like a pizza roll at Dragonstone. Yeah. Well, and uh, a thousand men who were like not just like uh, not just like peon guys who you who you stick in the front, and they're not just like arrow fire. They make the point of saying that they're like noble men and squires, yeah. like hardcore knights. You got a thousand of those who Cersei thinks are dead, but Loras was somehow able to convince to defect or something. Cersei yeah. already doesn't have a ton of manpower. The no. Lannister forces in general. Losing a thousand more, that's that could be big. So Yeah. But they were it should be noted in this chapter that we just read with Jamie, it's it he did note it's it's Lannister forces supposedly going to take Dragonstone. Mm-hmm. And so he would be convincing Lannister loyal Lannisters. men to, yep. to to defect, which is yep. a tall order. Yep. I don't know what you're promising, but mm-hmm. promising or threatening, I don't know. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, let's move on. Uh, you want to talk? That was fun, game? though. Yeah, sure. Something original. <laughs> well, I don't know how original it is. I haven't heard people talk about that that much. It really isn't talked about too much. Um. Okay. Uh, 
Aegon or um or Danny and flying to Westeros stuff. Uh, let's let's do some Aegon. All right, Aegon. And here we go. <laughs> uh so, you know, he's now the rightful heir to Westeros. If he is Aegon. If he is Aegon. And uh, we could we could have a little fun just real quick and saying what you believe about Aegon. I think we've talked a little bit about that I in think the past. We have too, yeah. Uh, yep. But yeah, I don't know. But I guess more importantly than what you believe is like, what's, what's the reality? We talk all the time about happen? yeah about Varys Varys's speech about power and the perception of power. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you know maybe that's what Varys and and Illyrio Mopatis are counting on. Yeah. Is that people perceive him to be true, and it doesn't matter whether he is who, or not. Who cares if he really is? Yeah. Yeah, what matters is that people think he is. Yeah. And uh, maybe thinking about it from Tyrion's perspective, like, what's he thinking? Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he goes through this great reveal in the chapter, like, and you are this guy, and I don't have anything important to say about it. <laughs> You just are, and I you know. Are, and I, and <laughs> it's more he just wanted to brag that he knew. Yeah, I support else. you, or I defy you, or I think you'll have support in the land, or you won't, or yeah, he doesn't. I, he doesn't really lend anything to it. I, I guess. Um, I don't know. No, but I, I think you. We've made the 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 point, and and the point is that it doesn't matter who he is really. We could sit and debate all night about who he is. If he's Illyrio's son or if he's not, if he really is Rhaegar's son or if he's someone else completely. It yeah. doesn't matter. The the only part that's that's interesting maybe is who knows the truth. Because if mm-hmm. Griff doesn't know the truth, he's going to be pissed off. Sure. And I don't think he does. I don't think he does either, or he wouldn't be doing it. He's doing it because he loves Rhaegar, right? Yeah, and he really, I think he, I don't think he would be nearly as devoted to this cause if he knew that, if he, if he knew it was like Illyrio's yeah. son or something like that. Yeah, Connington feels very much like he fucked up. Um, there's a whole bit, I don't remember exactly where it is, uh, but he talks about at, at the Battle of the Bells that he didn't do his job in turning up King yeah. Robert in time. And it, had he done that, they would have killed him and ended the war right there. But because he couldn't find him and the people, the townspeople were hiding him, Ned Stark came in behind and and fought the battle. And we have, you know, one of the scenes I really, really want to see somebody do a fanfic a film or, or, or a you know fan film about or something of Robert, you know, running across the rooftops with his hammer, you know, just like exulting in in battle, just in the battle smashing of the people, and yeah. even more the the point that Connington makes in that chapter is that he wasn't uh, we'll just call it tie winning enough. Yes, exactly. In his in his way of of searching for Robert, yeah. Uh, had had he been tie when he would have just burned the village down. He would have just burned Robert everybody out, men, yeah. women, children, including Robert. But he didn't. He tried to spare people and and just find Robert, and and he's vowed to not be like that again. Which uh, you know, yeah, could this is this is almost like his penance some scary trip, scary stuff. Yeah, right. Not to mention like, he's I suffering owe it to from Rhaegar. not to mention he's suffering from grayscale. He is, yep. And so his time is short, which could lead to him acting rather rashly just to see Aegon put on the throne. Right? I want yeah, to see could. this done before I die. Yeah, so, or go crazy. 
Yeah, there's that little bit uh, in the in the chapter where uh, where he says, "Don't let them, don't by God, don't let any of them touch you" or something mm-hmm. uh, regarding the stone men. Mm-hmm. Do you? He doesn't have it yet, right? You think he gets it in this chapter? I think he gets it in this chapter. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. But it is interesting. Um, you know, I, I kind of tried to skirt the issue in my summary, but we really don't know exactly how grayscale is is contracted and passed on because a stone man does touch Tyrion. And as far as we know, Tyrion does not get it. Yeah. So I, for some, I don't know why I don't have, again, for the win, me with no evidence. I I always felt more afraid of the water they're drinking mm-hmm. than of being touched by the stone men. Right. I don't know why. They, I would be creeped out by it. Yeah. I think it's the locals, uh, was it Yander, Yusela, mm-hmm. say like, uh, I wouldn't eat any fish from Yeah, here. we're not, we're not eating any fish out of this water. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway. It is them. And, and so, uh, so, but, you, but, but, it, but that theory really holds very little water because the last thing you read in that chapter is Tyrion swallowing a shit ton of water. And he does <laughs> contract it. And he as does, far as yeah, we know, unless it's it. very right. slow acting in, in dwarves right. or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or him in particular. Right. But. So anyway, uh, I guess it, it, the Aegon thing is mostly interesting, not to me or sounds like to you about whether it's true or not, as much as it is, what do people believe is true? How does it affect what happens with John as being an heir? How does it affect Danny and whether she thinks she now still deserves to sit the throne and mm-hmm. what what she's what she's kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, fated to do and what should she do um how does it affect dorn and their plots uh it's it just a, whether it's true or not it just throws kind of a lot of stuff in turmoil unless he just ends up getting eaten by a dragon in chapter and three of the next book and he's yeah. done well and, be... and and another one who i'd throw in there who i started thinking about with with all of this and the valencar and everything is jamie oh and and how would he react to all of this you know, would he stay loyal to sister or would he support Aegon? Bring yeah. the Kristen Cole comparison into this. Kristen left the one he was loyal to initially for a guy whose name happened to be Aegon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that would be a real literal thing of, of Jamie going, this is a guy I can get behind. You know, I messed things up, but I don't know. He mess. He doesn't feel like he messed things up before, but uh, he could definitely feel like maybe he owes Aegon something. Well, for there's what happened to baby Aegon and all that, and his family and everything. So there's that little bit before Rhaegar leaves for the Trident. Yeah, where where Jamie and he and a couple of their friends are talking, and they're mm-hmm. we only get it's like a paragraph or two. We get um, mm-hmm. a few chapters ago. We read it, I think. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I like maybe he feels like he could have done something to make sure that that change happened in a more natural way than killing him, than right. killing Eris. Mm-hmm. And maybe he feels somewhat responsible for that. Uh, you know, we got we got a really good email. Uh, I just responded to it uh, last night, I think, from uh, from Richard, uh, Rickard, uh, the master of the somnolent gases, one of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, um, from Down Under who, Us, right? Yes, Down, down Under Us, yep. Uh, he wrote just about the Iron Throne and who has a right to it and 
really that everybody has a right to it because mm-hmm. the only right to it is what you can take. And the only reason the the Targaryens have any right to it is because they had dragons and they were able to take it. And the only reason Robert had any right to it and why Stannis feels its birth right now is because Robert took it. And why Renly felt like he had just as good a claim because he had more support and could take it. And, you know, if if John, if Jamie found out that, that, that Aegon was out there, uh, would he feel like, oh, we can bring the Targaryens back into power you know, and I feel somewhat responsible for their demise. I slew the king and, you know, allowed for kind of a lot of that to happen. Mm-hmm. Would he feel like he needs to put them back on the throne? Or is he more of the mind like Rickard is of, uh, you know, anything goes here. And right. that guy doesn't have any claim that's better than the Lannister claim. Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to see. Yep. Yeah, I think Aegon, before I was very disinterested in Aegon, before this whole reread. Now I'm very interested, not that I'm invested in him as a character or anything. I'm just very interested in what his coming to Westeros will do to the other characters that I am invested in. (laughs) The chaos that it's inevitably going to cause. Mm -hmm. I still don't care about him that much. That all the people you mentioned, Dorn, uh, John, Danny, just everybody. It'll be cool. Yeah. The Tyrells. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Back back to what we said earlier in the chapter about what Danny's afraid of, and I mentioned, you know, being the last Targaryen and not being able to bring her family back to prominence. Mm-hmm. It, it to me the, the the effect Aegon has on Danny is could be could be very interesting and maybe maybe different than what a lot of people assume. A lot of, you know, a lot of people think that she'll just burn him down, you know? Right. And if she finds out he's pretending and knows that he's pretending, that it would be maybe a likely scenario. But just as likely to me is that she's overjoyed that she's not the last one. I I think it could just as well happen, too. I think we've talked about this maybe a tiny bit. And I agree with you. We don't need to go into it more. but Yeah, I think that it could very well be that that they join up and are actually very fond of each other. And Ooh. and that could real, but that could really lead to some interesting things if we think about it, because we know Ariane and Dorn is is it seems like they're lining up to join with Aegon. Now yeah. let's say let's say that Aegon and Ariane get married, mm-hmm. okay, and then you've got Danny and she gets to Westeros or whatever. Mm-hmm. Doran. Finds and and she aligns with Aegon. Oh, we're so happy. You know, we're not married or anything, but we're Targaryens, so we're a team. Stick together mm-hmm. here, or whatever. I don't know what'll happen. Doran then finds out that about Quentin getting roasted by Danny's dragons. Yep. Now you've got the dad-in-law who's upset. What is mm-hmm. going to happen? So I mean, there could be some really funky things that happen with all yep. of this. Yeah. Yep. It's gonna be cool, man. Mm-hmm. See where where George goes. Exciting. Things are just gonna explode. Yep. I think either way, oh. things are just gonna explode. People are gonna start dying right and left. It's gonna be nuts. You had a quick insight about John uh, in the John chapter about other houses declaring for Bolton and Mel's Mel getting it right. Yeah, so Mel sees a town with wooden walls and streets with a whole bunch of different banners. My first thought was Deepwood Mott, 
because we know that it's famously this keep that has wooden walls rather than stone walls. But upon closer look, we see that uh, Barrow Hall in Barrowton has those wooden walls and wooden streets. And actually a whole bunch of banners do meet up there, as when Roos Bolton finally gets back up north past Moat Kaelin, he calls the northern banners to come and pledge fealty at Barrowton. So, yeah. um, and she was very specific. She, she missed a couple of them. She actually didn't get like, uh, what were some of that she missed? Uh, Manderley, most notably. Um, but she, mm. she got some of them reasonably right. So I just thought that was interesting. We often talk about Melisandre messing up. Not always. She got this one right. So, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, people like you, Matt, that, that just have kind of a distaste for Stannis. Hmm. I'm not saying you do this necessarily, but I think they tend to just overlook Stannis as false because they uh -huh. don't like him. Uh -huh. And we know from Mel's POV that she believes in him. We know that Mel has an ability to get this stuff right. She has some sort of power from she, some sort of deity. She be it absolutely evil does. Yep. Or not evil. I don't know. But, like, you can't dismiss it. You can't dismiss yep. Stannis because she believes in him and she's proven that she gets shit like this right. Right. And they're not and guesses. Like we Shadow focus Babies on the things she gets wrong, but yeah. she she does have power. Yeah. 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 And she seems to be like you said, committed to the cause that she believes in. There's yeah. no funny games going on. Yeah. Unless she's got like some sort of multiple personality disorder or something. <laughs> Which who knows. <laughs> yeah. Which who George, knows? please don't do that, George. Please. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to be done or you want to have uh, cover Danny real quick? You know, I feel like we've talked about Danny a lot. Is there anything else to kind of talk about? Uh, uh, <clears throat> one thing that we noticed in this chapter is that she thinks she's starting. She thinks of Viserys a lot by a lot. You know, it's like two or three times, but that's quite a bit for one chapter. And you know, of him saying things to her like, you were born to serve them blood and fire, mm -hmm. you know? And what's that going to do as she eventually makes her way back to Westeros or uh, getting back to Marine and seeing, you know, whatever the outcome of the Battle of Marine is going to be. Uh, we're getting, we got starts of that in the Winds of Winter sample chapters. There's actually three Winds release sample chapters that deal with the Battle of Marine which is a lot when there's only been like seven or eight sample chapters released. Um, I feel like I must have missed one. So there's the Barristan one. There's the Barristan one. one yeah. There's a Tyrion, the Tyrion one. one. Yeah. And there's Victarion. Oh. Yeah. But the Victarion one, he's like just arriving, right? He's arriving as it's starting. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, you're right. It's mostly about him on the boat with Makoro and all that stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you do get that, uh, so then you have that knowledge that the Ironborn had arrived and that they're yeah. participating right. in the battle. At some point, doesn't I mean I, I agree with you? She mentions it a few times in this chapter, but at some point, doesn't Danny just like a bell go off in her head and be like, "Oh yeah, Viserys was a dickhead. Mm -hmm. Maybe I shouldn't let his voice ring in my ears." Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like he's not doing me any good. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's back to the Louis A.K. thing, the of course, but maybe. Yeah, maybe. And eventually the but maybe starts to overpower yeah. the of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
yeah. Uh, let's call it. Uh, are you ready to call it? We can call it. Yeah. All right. I oh, we're you've... supposed to. We're supposed to do a. Oh yeah. Our uh, favorite tinfoil theory. Tin our foil. last. Our last question and answer from. Uh, this one's from from Misa. Uh huh. The uh, queen of gifts and beauty, right? Yep. You got her. One of our faves. Favorite tinfoil theory and go, Matt. Uh, I gotta be loyal to me, man. I gotta go <laughs> with uh, with Team John. So, the idea that uh, that there's a group of of prominent figures out there supporting John for whatever his destiny might be, those guys being everyone from Benjamin and Jerem Mormont to to Blood Raven and who knows who else, uh, Mance Rhaegar is lumped into the Team John theory. So by association, that is also one of my favorite tinfoils, is that Mance is Rhaegar. I do like that tinfoil. I am excited to explore that tinfoil with you in greater detail, hopefully sometime in the future. Hmm. Um, hmm. Uh, but I mean, I'll go with a different one, just to be different. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't know how tinfoil it is. I mean, it's it's one of the more popular theories I think out there, but the Tyrion Targaryen theory is, is one that I like. Love it. Um, Good choice. Yeah. It just, it flips things on its head a little bit, allows Tyrion to, uh, his dragon lore stuff to really have meaning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't, I don't really care too much for the detractions from it. People say it like it devalues the stuff between him and, and and Tywin, which, um, you know, I, I have a, I have a mom that's adopted. It didn't, you know, being adopted didn't change her relationship with her parents. Mm-hmm. You still have relationships with the people that raise you, and it doesn't make them as meaningful. So I, I've never cared for that argument. Um, so yeah, I'll go with Tyrion Targaryen. I love it, man. That's All a right. good one that I I love too. So yeah. All right, let's do sign-offs. Okay. Uh, let's see. So this is me signing off with a lyric from the Counting Crows. It's just been on my mind lately with, uh, with Cornell's passing yesterday. And actually, um, not to, not to end this on a downer, but found out that, uh, a close family member, um, on my wife's side died tragically yesterday as well. Uh, a hit and run. He was riding his bike and, and he was, he was killed, I think instantly, and they still haven't found the the person that hit him, but there's an older guy who's in his fifties, four kids, you know, just one of the nicest guy you'll ever meet. And so that happened yesterday as well. Uh, and this this song from Counting Crows has been playing in my head ever since. Just wanted to share a line from it. He says uh, it's called Possibility Days, and Adam Duritz of Counting Crows says the worst part of a good day is the one thing you don't say, and you don't know how, but you wish there was some way. So you pull down the shades and you shut out the light because somehow we mixed up goodbye and good night. Um, so this is Matt signing off, wishing that uh, you never mix up goodbye and good night. Wow. Well done, Matt. Downer. Uh, <laughs> I'll just leave you guys with that. Good night. Good night, guys.
Samuel or Sammy or Sambo 2 from A Feast for Crows, John 4 from A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion 5 from Dragons, and Jamie from Crows. It's going to be a fun one. It's going to be a bumpy ride. I forgot the uh, number. I think that's Jamie 3. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. You Might did be Jamie 2. Oh, my god. Sorry, gosh. my bad. It is... I'm a fucking amateur! 57 episodes in! say it just so we're sure we get that right for the people it's got to be it's got to be uh three it's got to be it just i think it's three be. as well it has to be uh, it is it is three right okay yes no do you want me to look i am looking uh yes uh, 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 i think it's actually two <laughs> okay no way really <laughs> Just on the wiki. What is the matter with us? Uh, Sandra Cookie, Jamie Returns, King Landing, Red Wine's Feet. Yep, we're on two. Okay. Okay, it's two. <laughs> that was the worst opening ever. Should we just give it again? Should we just start sure. the whole thing over? Uh, yeah. Let's just yeah, the whole thing over. Oh, tickle in my throat. <clears> throat> Sorry, that and was my bad. That was your bad? I gave you the tickle? Oh, gross, Scott. <laughs> <sighs> Pull it together. Because uh, that's sorry. going on a deleted scene. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Blood Riders. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, as far as music goes, you probably noticed that we kept it pretty uh, Chris Cornell-centric in memoriam to the late rock star poet, lyricist, vocalist, so many wonderful things. Uh, the first song that we used by him was from Soundgarden, the band that he really broke through with. From their really breakthrough album, Super Unknown, the song that we used was Spoon Man. Uh, next, we go to a more obscure act that he was associated with, Temple of the Dog, which was made up of members of... Uh, him, of course, uh, members of Pearl Jam and uh, Malfunction. So they had one album, self-titled, and the song that we sampled was uh, Hunger Strike. Then go into the Audio Slave days uh, from the album Revelations. We did the song Revelations. So hope you enjoyed those. I realized as I'm sitting here editing that I didn't do anything from uh, his solo work. He's he released a handful or so of solo albums, all of them great. Um, if you're looking to get into those, I would recommend Carry On. I think it's from about 2007. Love that album. And then finally, did throw in some Counting Crows there at the end. A beautiful song called Possibility Days off their latest album, Somewhere Under Wonderland. Hope you guys like that one as well. Uh, we love you. Thanks for all the support from both Scat and myself. Um, we don't know what we'd do without you. So, stay savage, Blood Riders. See ya. Mm -hmm.